Episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Emma McRae. Emma is a former maths teacher who now trains teachers in initial teacher education, ITE, and also further education. Emma is a self-confessed maths geek and the author of the superb Making Every Maths Lesson Count. Emma's appearance also makes podcast history by being the first husband and wife team to appear on separate episodes following Pep's appearance a few years ago. Thankfully, Emma did not try to take over the interview like her husband did. Anyway, in a wide-ranging conversation, Emma and I discussed the following things and plenty more besides. Why did Emma want to write Making Every Maths Lesson Count and who is the intended audience? Emma then picks out three of her favourite ideas from the book, and there are some absolute classics. Then we turn our attention to the learning curriculum, a fantastic new resource that can help improve any teacher training that you may be giving. Next up, we talk in depth about Emma's approach to working with novice teachers. What difficulties do they face, and how has Emma reshaped the training programme to help deal with these? Finally, Emma reflects on a few things before picking out a fantastic big three. Now, this episode is an absolute corker. There are some strategies from making every math lesson count that you can put into action straight away. There's a resource that you can download to improve teacher training. And there's advice for supporting novice teachers in general, which I think has applications to improve teaching no matter what your experience level. One quick thing to mention before we start, I just want to give another massive shout out to my Patreon sponsors. Your monthly contributions help pay for the hosting of this podcast and also allow me to treat my wife and son to make up for the hours I spent locked in my office recording and putting the episodes together. There is absolutely no pressure at all. I will never ever dream of charging for these podcasts and I will keep going on them as long as people keep listening to them. But if you did want to support the podcast and sign up to buy me a Mellow Bird a month or whatever you can afford then just visit patreon.com forward slash mr barton maths and there'll be a link to that in the show notes anyway without further ado let me introduce the wonderful emma mccray i really hope you enjoy this one i know you will and as ever i will see you on the other side So, Emma, we start the podcast as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Hi, Craig. Um, well, at the risk of potentially being banished from the maths community, I'm going to I'm gonna put my head out here, stick my head out and say that I don't have a favourite number. Um, I certainly, like, have preferences, so they sometimes exhibit themselves in in sort of strange ways. Like if I'm listening to the radio in the car, I don't like listening to it maybe on like 13, an odd number <laughs> or something. Like I have some weird preferences, definitely. Um, but I don't think I have uh, a favorite number, so to speak. What I do like is I like, I like numbers that tell stories. Um, 
So, for example, when I was thinking about, okay, well, what's my favorite number? Okay, I don't have one. What can I talk about? Like me thinking about all the other favorite numbers that guests have had. I think that's really interesting. Like, what is there a story there? Like, would would there be a favorite favorite number? And so I suppose it's the stories that numbers can tell rather than the numbers themselves that that, that I'm sort of interested in. I like you. You've gone deep there to start things. A little bit. I like that. I like that. That's fantastic. Okay. well, what about question two then? What what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Well, I'm really going to get punished now because (laughs) I think I'm one of those people I don't have favourites. So, you know, when you um, complete your bank security questions and they ask you something like, what is the colour of your favourite hat? Yes. And and I'm just like, I don't have a favourite hat. Um, so 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 nothing sticks out in terms of of, of what I was taught. And I don't know whether that's because I don't have favourite things or whether I mean, I was taught quite procedurally um, in terms of my maths experience. And maybe that's why that there isn't a topic that kind of sticks for me. Um, but what what if you if you asked me that question and said it didn't have to be as a student, then when I started to. To, to make more meaning, I suppose, with my maths was when I started teaching, because um, I think you have to. And one of the things that really sticks out for me is uh, completing the square, because I was shown the visual representation of completing the square, and of course, why it's called completing the square. And that, for me, was just an absolute light bulb moment. So I suppose I could say that completing the square is my favourite topic now, but it didn't kind of stick out for me as being a student but more when I started teaching and making more links and sense and connections with maths that's that's very interesting that yeah I've, I've had a few of those experiences myself when it's only when you're having to teach something that you have to think that bit deeper about it and then you have a, a newfound appreciation that, that that's fascinating the other fascinating thing is I'm wondering which bank asks you what color your favorite hat is well, I've, I've never had that one that must be some funny Brighton think, bank or something yeah. probably but I just remember all of the security questions being quite obscure right and so when you don't have favorite things I don't think they ask favorite color of, of your hat but still um, yeah, totally. Fantastic. Okay, final speed dating question, Emma. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Oh, this is an interesting one. I think when I was growing up, I kind of wanted to be a jet fighter. <laughs> I know that sounds insane. Um, I just there was something about it that was really compelling. The problem was that I didn't want to go to war. Right. So that that's a kind of a, a no go there. And I'm probably way too old for that now, quite <laughs> frankly. So that's out. Um, I kind of like the idea of doing a job that's quite physical. So like maybe a firefighter. Um, but again, probably a bit old to start. <laughs> training for something like that um so i suppose i have to acknowledge that you know my skill set is what it is um and i think if i wasn't in education i'd still want to do something to do with learning um and so i probably i mean i love designing learning programs so i think it's kind of a cheat because it's sort of still in education but i'd love to do that outside of the sector so you know maybe for um like designing training for the emergency services or the NHS or governance or whatever it is. Um, but that's what I love doing. And I think it'd be really interesting to do that outside of, of the education sort of sector, so to speak. Um, Cause I think that people that design training programs, 
they do a really good job, the best of their ability, but I'm not sure that they always have that experience that you get from education and understanding how people learn. Um, so I think it'd just be really interesting to uh, to look at that. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. That. That's yeah. This is going to um, reveal a, a, a kind of darker side of me. Just thinking about this, but a couple of years ago, I was um, I was I had to go on one of those driving awareness courses because I was uh, I, I went too fast down this road and it, they offered, oh. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> they offered me points on one of these courses, and I went to one of those courses and and again, I couldn't believe how badly designed it was in terms of getting you to think and gauge yeah. and so on and so forth and i think you're right there's there's our experiences as, as teachers knowing that we have to kind of keep focused these adolescents who perhaps don't want to be there and so on and so forth can can really help the thinking of the, of the design of that that's fascinating and we're certainly going to be digging into training in particular training teachers in particular later on in the conversation superb emma fantastic okay well um next up i wonder if you could give listeners just a quick overview of your career to date yeah, of course. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is that like, if you'd have told me as a sort of a, a teenager or whatever that I would be a maths teacher, I'd have laughed and dismissed you instantly. Um, it was never really on the cards. So it's really interesting how I've ended up here. Um, I did the kind of traditional sort of school, uni, uh, studied maths. And I thought I wanted to be like an actuary or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers and... Yeah, it was just not right. It was just not the right fit for me. Uh, so I left and I went traveling and you know, did ski season and sort of wasted a bit of time pretending to think about what I wanted <laughs> to do. Um, and eventually I kind of felt pressured into some sort of action on the career front. Um, and so I thought, yeah, I'll train to be a teacher because I get to be a student again. And that'll be great. Um, unbeknown to me, it's not the same kind of student um, as it is when you're an undergraduate. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> uh, but I went to um, my auntie taught in a in a school in South London, and I went there and I had a look round and kind of thought, yeah, I quite like this. Did my PGCE and loved teaching, absolutely loved it. Uh, I remember saying when I left PwC, I thought. I want to get to the point where I can say that I truly enjoy what I do. Mm. Um, and, and remarkably, even though I kind of fell into teaching and it wasn't part of the, of the plan, uh, it, it became this thing that I absolutely loved doing. Um, and so that it, it was wonderful to find. Um, and I spent many years sort of in the classroom teaching, doing um, head of maths and um, SLT and all that, uh, AST, all, all of the different parts. Um, and I'm not in the classroom anymore, uh, which I miss terribly. And I hope that at some point I'll go back into the classroom. Um, but I also love the fact that now I get to train teachers. Um, and I do that in lots of different ways. Uh, my main job, I suppose, now is that I work um, on PGC programs at the University of Brighton. Uh, but I also work as uh, an assistant maths hub lead for two of the hubs. Obviously, um, I do some writing. I work with the NCTM and maths departments uh, occasionally. And so I love now what I do because I get to do so many different things, which is which is wonderful. And I'm less likely to do that if I'm in the classroom as well. So um, at the moment, this is a great option for me. It's fascinating, isn't it? I'm, I'm wrestling with this at the moment. I'm, I'm currently on my succumbent, so I don't have a formal timetable this year. And I, I 
I get to work with teachers and also work, work with kids in different schools. But it's very different, isn't it, being um, outside of the classroom, seeing your, your own kids day in, day out. Um, I wonder, Emma, just, just, for, just for, for listeners who are either in a similar situation or, or thinking of, of doing something different, the classroom teachers at the moment, but maybe some opportunities are coming up and, and they're wondering whether it's time to step away from, you know, five days a week um, in, in their own classroom. What, what for you, is, what are some of the things that you miss and what are some of the benefits? Uh, of, of not having that that regular five days a week teaching um i miss the students and the bands for want of a better <laughs> word like that's what made teaching for me um i just think teenagers are great i, I love them to bit the things that they come out with just make your day um or break your day but I yes. think that's that's part of it right yeah um and also I miss part of feeling like part of a kind of a community mm. because it's you and all the other teachers working really hard with the students who hopefully are working really hard to, you know, to succeed and to help them uh, succeed in life. And, and, and that, that, that I miss because I think you don't even acknowledge it's there until it's not yes. um, to a certain extent. Uh, that said, um, it's really tough to be a teacher. Like the workload mm. is 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 untenable at times. Certainly, with I mean, one of the big influences for me moving out of the classroom was having a family, having yes. a young family, and just knowing that I didn't feel, and I know some people can do this, but I didn't feel that I could be the teacher I wanted to be and the mother I wanted to be. Yes. Uh, and so that was, was, was also what, what I kind of grappled with it. And I find that immensely sad actually, that um, I think that many people feel that way. And I think it's really sad that our profession uh, leads to, to lots of people making the decision based on the workload. Um, as you know, like we have real issues with uh, student recruit, uh, teacher recruitment and retention. Um, and the retention is often about workloads. Um, so that really frustrates me. Uh, in terms of uh, my job at uni, you you get to have a greater influence, which is great. Um, you know, you feel like because you're you're teaching the teachers and then they go out and teach lots of students that that you're able to kind of share uh, your knowledge and, and expertise uh, to to a wider audience and maybe try and and, and kind of help. Um, teachers get even better that way and students have an even better experience. Um, and also when you leave the classroom, you do get flexibility. Uh, so, you know, for example, it's that time of year where I've got two children. Last week was a carol concert. Uh, tomorrow I've got the nativity show <laughs> and, and, and I can go to these things without, without any bother. Um, whereas obviously when you're in the classroom, that can be more tricky. I know that uh, hopefully people work in schools where where head teachers are supportive of, of teachers going to these things, um, but it's just more complicated because then it it leads to cover and, yes. and a bit more workload, right? So we're back with workload. Um, so that, that that was the some of the sort of issues in terms of of, of you win and lose in well, I feel like I win and lose in, in both instances. Um, there's things I miss and there's things I gain. Uh, 
It's, so, really, yeah. it's, it's really interesting you say that. So I've, I've been the reason I ask is it for selfish reasons, uh, as, as well as hopefully uh, listeners being interested as well, is I've been reflecting on this a lot myself because uh, we, we've got our little boy now, um, Isaac, who's at the time of recording is, is 11 months old. We've had, we've had a, a, a bad night's sleep, um, as listeners can probably uh, hear. I'm, I'm not exactly at my sharpest this morning. And I, <laughs> I just I think to myself, like, if I was teaching five days a week, so, something would have to give there. Either I would be the world's worst dad and i'm pretty bad as it is um, at the moment or i'd be the world's worst teacher because there's there's no way i could do both things and i think that would yeah it's it's so hard particularly if you are really passionate about your job and you think well if i start cutting corners here it's the kids who are going to suffer and so on and so forth so if but if you don't cut corners on the job side of things then your family start to suffer and so on and, and one of my main drivers for for kind of wanting to take a break is because we um we decided that we wanted to have a family and I had a conversation with my wife and said I, I can't do this if I'm if I'm teaching um, full time it's this it, this is going to end horribly and you're right I mean, it shouldn't be that way and I'm sure in some schools there are ways of, of making this work the workload isn't quite so severe but it's it's a massive problem isn't it it's it's, it's a really tricky one to solve yeah definitely and I, and I don't know what the solution is other than teachers teaching less um, and I know that that's uh, uh, financially yes, yeah. <laughs> something that just can't happen. Um, but I, I, I think that would help. Uh, uh, beyond that, I think any changes that we make are so limited and, and superficial. I mean, there's been a workload um, review by the government, but I'm not sure that that has um, transferred into into action that has made much of a difference uh, to teachers. So it is. It's it's immensely frustrating. Uh, and other than teaching less, I I don't I don't see what what we can do. What the solutions are to that, which is which is really sad. Um, and I think it's really short sighted because clearly, you know, teachers are teaching our our our, our children who will become adults and go out into the world and I just think it's it's short-sighted that it's underfunded and, and you know we can't we can't do better basically uh, but going back to that decision between you know uh, being a, a, a good mother or a good teacher or, or trying to be the best of both yes. I think in the end it, it came down to a bit of a selfish decision for me um, which was that I figured that I would probably use all my kind of energy up during the day yes. in my classroom and then get home and it would be my children that would suffer from my 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 mental exhaustion right yes. from from the day of, of dealing um with all the different things that happen in your classroom uh, and i i just didn't think that was fair on my children so uh yes there is that that decision to make and that and that's why i decided that that it wasn't right for me at that time and now um my children are getting older, which is why I start to think maybe maybe things could change. Um, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Fascinating. Superb. OK, well, uh, we'll turn now to my favourite question that, that I, I like to ask my podcast guests, Emma, and that's about a favourite failure. So I wonder if you can think, and it could be a lesson you've taught or or something else, um, some, some training you were doing, however you want to take this. But I'm interested in an experience that didn't go according to plan and, and crucially what you learned from it. Yeah, so I, I rather than a lesson with with students, it makes sense really for me to talk about uh, a training session with with my trainees. Um, so I have 
redesigned the math strand of the PGCE programme, uh, which I'll talk about a bit later on uh, this year. And one of the sessions was on how to select a practice task, an effective practice task for your lesson. Um, and I was really excited about this session you know when you think that like you planned it really well and you've got everything together and you're actually really pumped ready to go um I think we should see that as a warning sign more than anything but anyway so I'd 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 got together I think there were 10 resources um of of different types and the plan was I was going to give these to the trainees and they were going to do the do the the practice tasks and then sort of looking at them, compare them and work out which ones were good yes. uh, resources, in inverted commas, uh, good resources. And and I don't know what I was thinking, quite frankly, because <laughs> right. embarrassingly, I didn't even define what I meant by good right. before I started. <laughs> um I thought they would be able to spot this themselves and then we could kind of co-create some sort of success criteria around what makes a good resource. Um, right. But they don't know. They, they, I, I fell into that trap where I thought they, they'd be able to spot this themselves. Right. They'd be able to look at this resource and look at this resource and notice what I notice about yes. them. But I've got, what, 20 years experience of, of teaching and noticing what <laughs> is good or not about a practice task. Um, and, and I just, it, I mean, obviously it bombed because, uh, I mean, it was almost I was trying to get them to discover what a good resource was with no prior knowledge of what a good resource yes. was or a good uh, practice task. Um, and so I, it's really interesting because I talk in the book about the curse of knowledge um, and about how we 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 fail to kind of empathize how hard it is to learn things when we already know them. Yes. Um, and it, it was just a classic example of, of me falling into that trap. Um, I, you know, totally cursed by knowledge. I said, oh, these these resources, these practice tasks, they're going to do them. They're going to be able to, to see the differences between them. And then they're going to be able to, to work out what it is that that might make a good practice task. Um, and of course, they failed, um, and 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 the, the the training session failed. Um, How do you know it failed? What what did it look like? Well, we so I tried to after we we'd sort of looked they they'd done the practice tasks. I, I sort of said, okay, let's talk about each one. And the things that they were talking about weren't the things that were important about the task. And that's because I hadn't given the mind any guidance right. as to what they they should be looking yes. for. Because, of course, I mean, often they got distracted by the maths. And I did try to say we, we need to move away from it's not about the maths. It's about the structure of the, the practice task. But I didn't I didn't talk about, you know, does it increase in difficulty? Uh, you know, I didn't talk about features that might have help them in terms yes. of looking at it and going, does it do this thing? Does it make students think? Does it encourage them to make meaning of the maths? So all of these things that, that we internalize in terms of looking at a practice task and thinking, is, is that good? Um, I, I didn't explicitly talk about them. So therefore, they didn't really know what they needed to notice. Yes. Um, if that makes sense. And so when when we sort of had this feedback, 
some of the the practice tasks that that exhibited sort of potentially poor uh, features, they were perhaps talking about them being useful. Right. And so that's when I was like, oh, dear, <laughs> I really I thought I had this planned well. Uh, and I thought that I'd thought carefully about how the students would access this. And I, I didn't. I kind of did. I almost did concept, non-concept, like this is a good resource. This isn't. But I didn't explicitly tell them this is because of this and this isn't because of this. So therefore, they couldn't make those decisions themselves. Um it did have one great outcome, I must say. <laughs> uh, so so I, I kind of went away. Uh, the, the other reason, actually, that I knew that it didn't work is that my timings went out the window. Like, we were still discussing it half an hour after we should have moved on to something else. <laughs> um, so that's another indication of, of it. It all sort of fell apart in terms of, of structure, uh, the session structure. Um, but I, I went away and I thought, right, OK, why didn't that work? What what? What what did I fail to to consider in terms of my design and my planning? Um, and so I thought about those things I've just talked about with you. But but what I then did was at the beginning of the next session that I uh, led with the trainees, I talked about my reflection on the session, which enabled me to kind of model the reflection process that they need to go through. So I could say to them, right. Uh, I don't feel that the training session went very well last time. These are my reasons. These, This is the evidence. And what I'm actually modelling for you here is how you might reflect after you've taught a lesson and what evidence you might find in a lesson to suggest whether it worked well or not. Nice. And nice. so that I kind of felt like I almost want to do the same next year <laughs> so that I can do that part. Um but it was great because I could talk about, you know, what, why, why didn't it go well, how I knew that and what I do differently next time, which is exactly what I want the trainees to be doing when they come out of their lessons. So yes. it kind of had a, a, a kind of a, every cloud has a silver lining. I managed to use it to my advantage to be able to 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 work with the trainees on modeling reflection, which I hadn't even considered doing before. Uh, so that was that was a good outcome. I mean, that's fascinating that because, again, you could to make that modeling of reflection effective, they had to go through that experience. Didn't they? Again, you, you couldn't you couldn't shortcut them to to getting good at modeling, uh, at being able to reflect effectively without them having gone through that. So that that ended up probably more effective than if you'd have just done the uh, <laughs> the task on its own. So that's, that's a sign of what a brilliant teacher you are there, Emma, that on oh, a subconscious level, you, you knew to do that. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about that is, um, I tell you, it really resonates with me this. Um, when I do a lot of, when I do workshops and things with teachers, Often I I throw out all the things that I know about what's effective doing work with kids. And it's a terrible idea because teaching is just teaching. And, and this curse of knowledge can can seep into to our instruction, no matter who we're working with. And, and the tiny little things about retrieval, assessing prior knowledge, checking for understanding and so on. They're just as important, no matter who the audience is. And I think that I've certainly been guilty of falling into that trap of all the things I've learned as a teacher well let's just kind of forget those because i'm working with adults now but it's 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 the same ball game isn't it everyone everyone Completely. it's yeah and it's it's remember teachers are teachers and it's and it's remembering remembering all the skills that you've got with with whatever audience that's uh yeah that's fascinating 
no, no, I love, I love that for a favourite failure. Um, right, well, we've got kind of three big areas that we we want to dive into today, and we're going to start with with your book. Now, pe- people, I tell you what, I mean, you won't believe this. People have a go at me on Twitter because I'm always really positive about the books that people talk about on this podcast. But the reason for that is I only have people on whose books I, I thoroughly enjoy, and I absolutely loved uh, making every math lesson count. I was lucky enough to get um, an advanced copy of it, um, and I think it's one of the most insightful but also and i think this is this this for me is the kind of biggest compliments i can play pay, pay it it's one of the most practical um, books on math education i've ever read because you can read it and think right i'm going to try that tomorrow i'm going to try that straight away period three with my class but also you can build in structures and ideas over the coming weeks months and years and for me that's super powerful whereas there are some books which are incredible but by God, you've got to really think hard about how, what's that actually going to look like in my classroom? How's it going to change my practice? Whereas I say, I think your your book strikes a perfect balance between long term things, but also re- short term, really exciting things. So that's my kind of setup about it. But if we've got listeners who um, aren't aware of the book and, and haven't read it, um, just just sell us on the dream of this, Emma. And um, why did you want to write it? And, who, and who's it aimed at? Oh, well, thanks, Craig. That's uh, really kind of you to say. Uh, you've talked a lot about what I wanted to talk about later in terms of the practicality. Oh. <laughs> <of> the <book. laughs> but it, comes, it, it sounds much better coming from you than I. Um, so the book, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, the book is is part of a series. Um, Sean Allison and Andy Harvey wrote Making Every Lesson Count uh, many years ago now and then created uh, subject specific versions so there was making every science lesson count, making every English lesson count, so on and so forth. Um, and science, English, history, primary geography already had their versions. Uh, but maths didn't. And so Sean and Andy were looking for an author. Um, and I just I don't know. I mean, I don't I, I don't necessarily think I mean, I'm thinking back now at the time where I thought I could do that. I'm going to try. I, I'm going to try and pitch for this. And that feels now like quite a brave move uh, for me. And so I don't know what I was thinking at the time, but but I did. I thought I could do that uh, despite never having written any long piece of writing. I mean, I didn't wow. even do a dissertation at uni because I did a maths degree. Um, so I don't know, as I say, I don't know what I was thinking <laughs> when I thought I could do that. Um, but, yeah, I did. And. I just thought about all the all the experience I had and just sort of felt like I might have something to contribute and something to share. So uh, there was a, a pitching process. I had to write a sample chapter, as did uh, some other people, and submit it. And they thankfully asked me to write the book, which was wonderful, uh, a wonderful moment and a terrifying moment, as you can imagine. <laughs> what, uh, was your, what was your sample chapter of? It was practice. Uh, it was about procedural variation and um, something that I call fluency synthesis, both of which are strategies that are, that are still in the book. Um, and I think I, I did a bit of an intro. This is a long time ago now, so I'm trying to remember. I think the intro talked a little bit about deliberate practice and about the features of deliberate practice that we can try and replicate in the classroom, even though the, the deliberate practice itself is a highly individualised um, type of practice that, that we could take some features and try to replicate them as best we can in the classroom. So I had a bit of the introduction to practice, uh, talked about two strategies, which were the procedure variation um, and fluency synthesis. 
And uh, yeah, they really liked it. And so said, yes, please write the book. And I was both, uh, yeah, like it was awesome to hear and terrifying to hear because, uh, you know, there's a part of, there's a part of you, isn't there? There's, there's a big part of me. I was like, I really want to do this. And there was a little part of me going, Oh my gosh, I don't think I can do this. Um, the, the, oh, sorry, Emma. No, you go. Um, so yeah, so that, the, so that, that's kind of how it came about. Um, and then, uh, I met with Sean and Andy, had a chat with them. They said, make it your own, off you go and, See you in, you know, I think it was a year, year's time. Um, that, that interests me that because I think certainly I, I'm not, I'm not aware. I've not spoken to an author before who's had to write for a, a pre-existing series. So yeah, I was interested in, could you, could you literally take it in any direction you want or were there certain guidelines and restrictions that you had to stick to? Well, I was very grateful for the structure because I think that if I'd have had to, I don't think I'd have written the book had I not had, had I not sort of bought into that series and had that structure to work with. Because uh, I think it did a lot of the really difficult thinking for me. Um, so that, I think it helped in many ways. And Sean and Andy were great. I mean, they said, do what you want with it. And what, what those who are familiar with the book will know, or with the original at least, is that there are six principles mm. uh, in the original book and one of them is explanation and one of them is modeling and i spent a long time i kept asking everyone i met in the maths <laughs> community so what's the difference between explanation and modeling in maths like what do we do them separately um and i just got to the conclusion that in maths uh we don't we we don't really uh unpick those two things and do them separately like our ex- explanations in maths our modelling, like it's yes. the nature of our subject. They're, they're so entwined. It, it felt wrong to try and write a chapter about explanation and then a chapter about modelling. Yes. So mine is unique in the sense that it's the only one in the series that has five chapters for the six principles because explanation and modelling form one chapter. So I wrote about them together um, and didn't split them. So they were they were great in that sense. I remember I, I sort of emailed them and said, look, I'm really struggling with this. I, I, I cannot unpick these two things in maths. Can I can I write one sort of slightly longer chapter uh, about the two of them together? And they said, yeah, yeah, whatever works in your subjects, like you're the expert. So that was great. Um, and that means it is unusual in, the, in that sense. Um, it's also unusual because it's the biggest one which yes. everyone else is not so happy about for the other authors. <laughs> Especially Mark Enser, because he said uh, it, it made his um, bookshelf look untidy. So. <laughs> did, you, um, did you read the other ones? Yeah, yeah, the ones that were uh, already written. Yeah, I've got a little shelf myself of all of them. Um, and I, I shamelessly stole excellent parts from, from many of them. Um, so the, the, the science, the English the geography, the primary and the history, I think, were the ones that, that already existed. Yes. And yeah, and the original, of course. So I, I kind of not, not only in terms of content, but I used them to help me think about the structure uh, and the, 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 the kind of balance between theory and practice as well, which was really important to me. 
That's interesting. Um, I was going to ask you before we dive into into your book itself. Um, I, I often make the point, and it never get well. It goes down well if I'm speaking to math teachers, but it doesn't go down well if I'm speaking to other teachers. That often when I'm involved in or, or like in the audience for some cross curricular training all the time running through my head is well this isn't suitable for maths this wouldn't work in maths it looks completely different in maths i think maths is special because obviously I'm, I'm a maths teacher and, and ridiculously biased in, in that sense <laughs> was there um, was the having been through this experience of, of reading all these different subject specific books and then writing a maths book but within kind of part of of this cross-curricular series are you of the opinion now that there are more areas of pedagogy that transfer across subjects than you were when you went into it? Or have your views not changed at all? Does that make any, any sense at all? Are, are, you, are you more aware that there are these general principles that, that make for good teaching? Yeah, I think the principles are sufficiently generic that they allow for subjects to hang whatever pedagogy works for them um i mean a, a big thing for us the thing that that often pops up for us is is that worked examples obviously it's it's our bread and butter yes um and it, it was interesting to think about how they work in other subjects um i i worked a bit with greg thornton who teaches history and he did some work around what worked examples look like in history um, and also as part of the learning curriculum, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit about, more about later, um, we had teachers of different subjects think about what some of these things look like in their subject areas. And I think for some, like if we go back to the example of worked examples, for some subjects, it's harder to think mm. about what they look like than they look like in maths, but not impossible. Um, so I think that they are... That these pedagogies can be similar uh, and work across all subjects, but they might need tweaking, perhaps, in terms of, of, of how they're used. Um, but I, I certainly think that there's things that work much better in one subject than another. Yes. I'd, say, well, I'd love to see a worked example in something like history, you know. They, how, how does that work? Do they do like the example problem pair and stuff like that in, in other subjects? Well, have you, have you, have well, you yeah. seen I mean, anything I think, in action? I think in, in, when, you, when you do anything that's written, you can, you can do a worked example pair. So I'm going to sound like I really don't know what I'm talking about. Now, <laughs> well, that'll be two of us anyway. I can't believe <laughs> you've moved me out of maths. So I'm just being the fear. Um, so, so I imagine that, you know, in English, you might model a sentence uh, that, that, that is focusing on, on, I don't know, persuasive language yes. or something. And then you might say to the students, OK, now you do the same yes uh i mean uh, english teachers are going to be rubbishing me on twitter <laughs> now aren't they <laughs> what is emma talking about oh, hopefully they don't listen to it because they're not maths right is that where we'll go with that um but i mean i can see how writing might be modeled in that way and obviously uh lots of subjects can can model sort of yes sentence structure um in that way i, d I don't i don't know what it looks like for I suppose if you take something like PE, that's probably quite easy to do it in as well, yes, because yes. you could just like 
Oh, no, I'm going to stop. Craig, I'm going yeah. to stop now because I'm just going to embarrass myself. All the other subject teachers are going to hate me. Um, yeah. I think that it is possible for them to exist in other subjects, but I'd like to leave it to the experts in yes. their subjects to talk about what that looks like. Yeah, fast, no, I, I, I don't blame you for jumping out of that one. The reason, <laughs> I, the, re, the reason I say it is, is often I'm asked to give um, kind of whole school training. And I always say, look, come on, I don't have a, I mean, I'm very clueless in maths, but in terms of other subjects, I do not have a clue what's going on. And if, if, if I accept the invitation is with a huge disclaimer saying, mm. look, I can only show you examples from maths because that's all I feel confident about talking because I've experienced them myself. And your challenge is to think if there's any worth in these ideas, what would it look like for you, for your subject, for your context with, with your kids? And yeah, I get the sense that the, the notion of the way we may model in mathematics does transfer across but yeah i i yeah it, the challenge is definitely upon the teacher to think is there a way to make this work yeah no that's that's fascinating i'll let you off the hook we will we'll, we'll, steer, we'll, we'll steer back onto maths <laughs> yeah, for <please>. now. <laughs> um, so back, back to your book Emmett. so i, I outlined um uh, my little kind of brief intro to it um how i use it how i really like the practical side of it was was that what was kind of running through your head is that how you wanted it to be used as, as a kind of a practical guide as much as it is the theory behind why why these ideas are likely to be effective yeah, I think that was a, a huge um, aim for me in terms of the book. I think I'm guilty of reading a book about education, as many others probably do, and thinking, oh, that's a great idea, and then doing absolutely nothing yes, about it, yes. right? Um, and there's a great quote in the book from Tom Sherrington. He says, reading books alone does not change our teaching. Changing our teaching changes our teaching, which I think is great. That's nice, um, yeah. and, and it's a really, really strong mantra for it, it's not it's not the reading, like it's not the book, it's the action. Um, and so that was a real guiding light. I wanted teachers to be able to, as you say, um, read a little bit of it, perhaps, and go, oh, that's a nice idea. I'm going to go and try that. Um, and so it was almost that it would work as a, as a kind of a handbook, I suppose, or a reference book, as well as something that someone might sit down and, and, and read it in one reading or over a, over a period of time. Um, so that, you know, teachers might dip in and out of it, perhaps, when time presents itself, not that that often happens as a teacher. Uh, and so it, it being practical was really, really important to me. Uh, as you say, that there's, there's nothing worse than, than going to a kind of a training session or reading a book and, and, and kind of being invested in what they're saying, mm. but not really think, not really knowing what that thing looks like in yes. your classroom. And it, and it's much less likely to, to result in change to practice if, if actually the, 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 the leap from the book or the training to, to what it actually looks like is, is too great. Yes. So I wanted it to be lots of things, but practical was definitely top of the list and also with an eye on workload. So, kind of low effort, high impact wherever possible. Mm. Um, and so some of the strategies are just, you can just do it right there and then. Um, as you say, some of them are a bit more long-term, a bit more in terms of, of changing your thinking or, or working over time. Um, but yeah, definitely the practicality aspect of it was, was massively important. Uh, and I, I kind of tried to weave in a few other things that I felt was important about uh, what I wanted the book to, to be. So 
obviously it had to fit in with the structure of the other books um it had to be accurate that was really important <laughs> and i i'm sure you know about the process of of, of fact checking or yes. your your quotes and and how uh in depth that that process is um but also evidence informed so there are some big ideas that i try to weave in um throughout the book so each chapter has got a, a kind of a big idea that i wanted to introduce to teachers so uh for example there's um in the challenge chapter i talk about what you know what is learning how we might define learning in terms of memory we talk about uh co's poor proxies for learning um we look at uh prior knowledge and the importance of that Deliberate practice, which I've mentioned already, and Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve. Um, moving on to question, we look at the curse of knowledge and the Dunning-Kruger effect and what impact that might have on what is really happening in the classroom. Um, and lastly, uh, look at learning versus performance and the issues yes. around learning happening over time. So there were some kind of big ideas that I felt I wanted to weave in uh to the book and so I did that by placing one in each chapter and talked about those in the introduction to the chapter before we moved on to the strategies I think oh sorry sorry I was just just going to say just just at this point sorry to to the button um I I I, get, I think the structure works absolutely superb and as I say I think it's a great kind of marriage between um the the practical and the theory what I wanted to ask Emma because this was something I I debated when I was writing my book and I still think hard about it now and that is did you have a a certain experience of teacher that you were thinking about writing for when you were when you were putting the book together and the reason I ask is obviously you working with 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 trainee teachers they have a a, 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 a limited well certainly relatively less knowledge and experience than somebody who's been teaching for kind of 20 or 30 years um and therefore they are going to perhaps get different things out, out of the book and, and approach things in different ways what, what were you trying to do were you trying to aim it for all teachers or, or less experienced teachers or more experienced teachers what, what, what was did you have a have an audience member in mind when you were writing it that's a really interesting question and i think the answer is is no i didn't focus on one type of teacher but i think what the what the practical strategies allowed me to do was to have strategies that were appropriate perhaps for all different types of teachers so those in training through to those with uh i mean i had an email this week from someone with 25 years experience who felt that there was something for them in the book and i so i so, so i suppose the structure helped with that because you've got strategies like uh, we talk about wait time in there. Well, for many teachers, that will be part of their practice and, and embedded. And, and that's not something that they need to work on. Uh, but but also there's there's some uh, there's a strategy about challenge and how we can try and measure the challenge that we're presenting to students. And once we can measure it, how we can manipulate it. And that's a really interesting one. Um, it uses the depth of knowledge and mm. the FICT framework. Uh, and, and I think that's a really interesting one for maybe teachers who have developed lots of skills already and maybe have got sort of worked example pairs, concept, non-concept already in their practice. Mm. 
but the, it, it felt like I could provide them hopefully as well with something that they felt was useful to work on in their classroom. So I suppose the strategies allowed me to to be able to to cater for for all needs. Um, and certainly I've had feedback that more experienced teachers have said, oh, actually, it was great to read about this strategy because I already do it. And so it was yes. great to, to go, yes. oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, I do that already. And oh, well, yes, there's a little, you know, there's a little additional bit I could add mm. on to it to, to, to make it even more effective. And I think that more experienced teachers found that really nice, that it kind of validated that uh, that their practice was was already, um, you know, very effective. That's interesting. That and um, final, just final question before we dive into to some of your favourite ideas, and it, it's related to this. And I, I don't know if this this is going to be a convoluted sentence. And see if you can pick any kind of sense out of what I, what I'm going to say here. But I, I again, I wrestled with this when I was um, when I was writing my book, and that is, do you think that teachers have got to have gone through and experienced some slightly less effective practice themselves to be able to really see the power of some of the strategies that you're talking about and, and the reason I say this is is often um, the teachers who I think enjoy my book the most are the ones who perhaps for, for whether it's three years five years ten years or whatever have taught in a way that perhaps didn't feel entirely right to them and actually wow i can really relate to this experience that that me as an author has gone through ah yeah i recognize those problems and then here's a here's a solution as opposed to somebody who doesn't have that experience um, as has been a teacher has perhaps not failed as many times as we failed so therefore can't quite see the power of some of the strategies that, that you talk about in a way that a more experienced teacher would does that make any sense at all um a, li a little <laughs> there's more I'm, than i was hoping anyway no, I'm, I'm sort of I'm, I'm i'm drawn to talking about what's really interesting about what you're saying is that um i wanted to do some work with the trainees about kind of myths and educational myths mm, yes yes but what's really interesting about that is that to them there are really no myths because yes, they don't yes. know any different. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know? Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I, I was, I was teaching through VAC. I mean, I dutifully, <laughs> yeah, I dutifully <laughs> surveyed all my students and made sure I knew which one they were and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, I think that, that what you're talking about is really interesting because there are teachers out there who, Myths will exist to them because they will have experienced things in the past that that we thought were useful to do and, and turn out not to be. Um, but then there's there's trainees who like VAC doesn't mean anything to yes. them. Um, I mean, they, they still they still have some myths that need breaking from from just a general perception of of of, of education and their experience of education. But, it, but it's just it's not the same um, and I think that's that's sort of the point that you're trying to make in terms of <laughs> that um, the prior it's about back back to prior knowledge, isn't it? And the and the students don't have much prior knowledge in terms of teacher um, and education specialised skills and knowledge. So yes. it, it, it's a slightly different approach um, in terms of you've got nothing to break. Really, you've got very little to break down before yes. you start to build. Um, yeah, it's, it's so I, I don't. I don't know how the book really tackles that, if I'm honest. 
Um, no, it's again, it's just a fascinating concept that, that often I find it's easier to engage teachers who have had who have had myths or negative experiences because they, they can relate to it more. So you can break that down and then they're eager for the for the alternative. I'm just interested. And I promise we, we will get on to onto the practical things next. Well, what are some of the myths, if any, that your trainee teachers do come in with based on, on their kind of prior experiences being students themselves? What what are some of these these notions that they they perhaps start the training course with? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I, d I don't know what they are specifically. I think the problem is, is that they come in. I mean, everyone's got an, uh, an opinion about education, right? But it's completely based on their own experience. Yes. And their own experience to them is one that worked because they're successful. Mm. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, and so I suppose it's it's kind of breaking down that because that approach, whatever it might be, worked for them, it doesn't yes. necessarily work for everyone. Yes. Um, and and I think there's some you know counterintuitive ideas in in education that uh, that that teachers sometimes. Um, struggle with and, and I do I mean one one controversial one that you sometimes talk about Craig is this idea of like having stuff on the walls so oh don't go down this road should we not go down this road all, all, all the hate mail that's coming in for English teachers for you uh, is now going to be yeah, they're going to be having to redirect <laughs> <laughs> yeah go on go but for it but you know so, sometimes sometimes uh, you know we think things are useful because they seem logical, right? Yes. So like putting stuff yes. up on the walls to help students recall facts yes. or to have their work yes. on the wall. Like we, we think that has a really good motivating, um, like there's a motivation rationale there. And, and there possibly is, but also that they're distracting and, yes. and we don't necessarily think about the distracting element of it. And it was really interesting because I did a session with the trainees about, um, about about this and, and, and other aspects of, of kind of attention and the importance yes. of attention in learning. And I put a little poster on bef before we started. I put a little poster on the wall that said, um, if you're reading this, you're distracted. <laughs> and then sort of halfway through the session, I just said, put your hand up if you've read the poster. And, and half the half the yeah. half the trainees put their put their hand up. So um, I, do you know what? I, someone's calling me on my phone, so I'm now totally distracted, which is <laughs> nice ironic, given that we're talking about distractions. <laughs> so anyway, so, so it was really interesting because I used this, like the front of the walls of our, our in fact, our wall, uh, the rooms that, that we teach in at university are very blank because yes. they're not our rooms. Um, and so I used this example of, of just putting this little poster at the front of the room to prove the point that they would read that when in theory, they should have been listening to what was going on. And so it, it was an interesting point to make about how easy it is to be distracted. That's nice. That's lovely. Fantastic. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, Emma, for the, um, uh, obviously, um, if people haven't read the book, the first thing they're going to do, I hope after this interview is, is go and snap themselves up a copy, but whether you've read it or not, I wonder if there were perhaps three ideas or one or two, however you want to, want to take this that you could describe to listeners and um, that are some of your favorites from the book and um, that they could, they could then have a, have a think about and maybe even try some ideas out um, in their classroom. So well, what are you going to choose, Emma? 
Okay, so let's let's start with the one that I've sort of uh, touched on already, which is this idea about measuring challenge. Mm. Um, so, so I, I look at two frameworks in the book that uh, the, the strategy is called quantify and ramp up challenge. But essentially, they're, they're two frameworks that allow you to take um, a task or or a problem or a question or what, whatever you want to refer to um, in terms of, of, of a question that we, we would ask in mathematics and somehow rate how challenging that that is in its current form and offer a structure for being able to change the level of challenge of, of that question. Um, and so there's two frameworks, depth of knowledge and fit. So I'll talk about depth of knowledge very briefly because I know that you've got Robert Kaplinsky coming on yes. to talk to you, right? Has yes. he? Have you done that yet? No, no, it's in, in the pipeline for okay. 2020. We're going big on that one, yes. Yeah, because because that will be epic. So he is a teacher in the US who is the expert on depth of knowledge, and a lot of what I write about in the book it draws on his work. Um, so the depth of knowledge is, is basically there's four levels of increasing requirement like a thought. So it's not necessarily that that a task might be harder or take longer, mm. but that it would require more thought. So let me give you an example, because this is hard to understand otherwise. So if we think about area and perimeter, okay. a depth of knowledge one level one question might be something like, Find the perimeter of a rectangle that measures four units by eight units. Okay. Right. So limited thought. Yes. Quite procedural. Job done. So if if we wanted to look at depth of knowledge level two, so we're increasing the level of, of thinking to a certain extent. Um, so the second one is list the measurements of three different rectangles that each have a perimeter of 20 units. Nice. Right. So, so, so there's a bit more thinking required there. Um, and then depth of knowledge level three. So we're increasing it further might be what is the greatest area you can make with a rectangle that has a perimeter of 24 units? Nice. Yes. Yes. Now, level four is, is slightly obscure. Level four is, is <laughs> kind of more sort of things that happen over time. Um, so level four tends not to be involved too much in terms of taking one problem and changing the the level of, of thinking that is required by a student. Um, but that's an example for area and perimeter of what levels one, two and three might look like. And is the idea, Emma, that kids have to progress through these kind of one at a time or can you fast track and jump to the jump to level three or four? Yeah, I mean, it depends where you are in a, you know, maybe I don't know what language you want to use, unit of work or learning mm. episode. Um it's not that level one problems are not useful yes, um, yes. because they're definitely a necessary scaffold for mm-hmm. the for the, the the further problems. Um, and and, and uh, Robert Klepinski suggests that you start with level one and you move on when the students mm-hmm. are ready. Um, but the idea being that it's not about this is necessarily mathematically more complex. Yes. Um, it's not more difficult. It's just that you have to think harder about it. Yeah, I think that's that's a really ing- for me. That's that's the real power of this depth of knowledge framework. It's not it, it's not even kind of uh, 
interleaving in like decimals, negatives, fractions, algebra. It's not um, ramping up the complexity. It's not giving kids loads and loads and loads more questions. It's not your traditional way that you might no, think of exactly. it, increasing challenge. It's it's more sophisticated than that. But also what's nice as well, um, what I like about it, well, there's many things I like, but it's not a massive workload issue for the teacher. It's not like I have to produce a whole other activity or anything like that. It's It's essentially one question. It's one task which can yeah really stimulate these these different levels of thoughts yeah i love i love that depth of knowledge framework is that something you have you had um kind of feedback based on that that this is a particular idea that the teachers really relate to um i think this is a tricky one it's a strategy that isn't instantly actionable it's one that you have to think quite carefully over mm. time um so i've had some teachers feedback that they've thought about it and actually i i I need to think about it a bit more because I think also that this can be used in other subjects back to the oh, um, dangerous, dangerous. Yeah, dangerous. <laughs> I know um, because originally I think it was uh, a US researcher, a guy called Norman Webb, who came up with this. It, it, it's it's not necessarily just for mathematics. Um, I think it's been that the language has been rewritten for mathematics, but originally I think it was for all subjects. Um, and so I, I, I kind of feel like I want to, to work with teachers more about what it looks like in other subjects as well to help gain a better understanding of, of how to do it. Because yes. whilst I, it, it's really powerful, it's actually quite hard to do um, in terms of creating these these yes. questions. I mean, luckily, I don't know, uh, you're probably familiar with Open Middle, yes, but that, that fun, website yes. is, um, I think everything's tagged by depth of knowledge, um, level i think most of them are two or three so yes. so there is there is there is a source where you can go and and kind of find some of these um but it's but it's quite it's one of those things that's quite hard to do but it's the thought process that a teacher might go through in trying to do them that is actually quite useful like yes. wh like what what thinking is my student doing at this point is a really yes. useful question to ask I, I, com I completely agree. Um, now, I was I was familiar with with depth of knowledge um, when I when I read your book, but the other framework that you spoke about, I'd, I'd never heard of before. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the FICT framework is actually something that I used a little bit um, as part of the national strategies work around um, functional skills. So you know, there was a period of time when there was talk of students having to sit a level two functional skills yes. paper as part of the GCSE. That's right. Yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. All these things happened, right? There was like the linked <laughs> pair pilot. There was yeah. loads of stuff that went on back then. So we were in um, the pilot for that for that GCSE, the, the GCSE where you had to get a level two functional maths paper or qualification alongside like it was embedded within the GCSE and so it was really interesting because we did a lot of work around functional maths and the FICT framework came out of that um, so the FICT framework is basically um, F-I-C-T standing for familiarity independence complexity and technical demand mm. and so the idea being that you can take again, a, a, a question or a problem, and you can uh, adjust the levels of each of those things. So let me give you an example again. Worked examples always helpful in terms of understanding. So um, 
if you t- if you take two fifths plus a tenth. Okay. Yep. Yep. So you might want. Uh, so if you if you thought about familiarity for that question, so familiarity being whether a student has previously been exposed to a similar problem, right? Okay. So fami- familiarity of that is quite high. Two fifths plus a tenth. They're probably going to have seen that before. Um, it's quite a familiar problem. So you could decrease the familiarity by asking them to calculate two fifths plus a tenth plus a two fifths, or two fifths plus question mark equals a half. So, I mean, these are these are fairly standard ways in which we might tweak questions. Um, But it's like when you put them all together, it's an interesting way of of thinking about challenge. Um, So that's familiarity. Uh, You could also maybe add in it being the perimeter of a rectangle whose sides are lengths, two fifths and and, uh, a tenth or whatever it is. So then independence uh, um, is it depends on how you set that up in in the lesson to a certain extent. It's kind of the level of autonomy the students experience. So working on their own, obviously they're more independent. Doing it as homework or tackling it months later is much more independent. Um, working in pairs, low independence. So you can play with that in terms of yeah. how you get students to tackle the problem. Um, complexity. So complexity is is kind of about accessibility. How complex is it to access for them? So um, we might say to them, OK, we're going to increase. It's, it's two fifths plus a tenth, probably fairly low complexity. Mm. So mm. if we wanted to increase that, we might say to the students, OK, find two different fractions that add to give a half. Yes. Yeah. Or maybe... Um, there's a there's a lovely I think it's uh, one of Colin Foster's tasks where you get given six fractions and you're asked to add them together to get an answer as close as you can yes. to one. I like that. Yeah. One, yes. So this is like making the the complexity of the problem, the accessibility. Um, you might say the depth of knowledge is 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 at play here. Um, and then finally, there's technical demand, um, which is including kind of. The difficulty of the mathematics um, being more difficult or less difficult. Um, And so you might do that by including perhaps mixed numbers to Mm. make it slightly more technically demanding um, or thirds to make it, you know, like very high on that scale. And so the FIT framework allows you to kind of play with any one of those factors to ramp up or decrease challenge uh, off a scaffold as appropriate. Um, and so that's another way of, of taking something and saying, OK, I want to make this more challenging or less challenging. I'm going to do that by making it less familiar. Do you know what? I really like that. Emma. I'm, increasingly these days, I'm, I'm obsessed by kind of structure, routines, things that I can, once I learn or my kids learn, we can apply to lots of different subjects. And that's why I like the process, for example, problem pair and the process for my SSDD problems. Because once, once, 
both me and my kids get familiar with them we can apply it for, for lots of different ideas and less curriculum time is taken up explaining what this task is how to do it and so on and so forth what I like about this framework is again it's something that teachers could apply to their planning in the sense that once they've got used to doing this with with one mathematical idea or one question then the more times they repeat that the the quicker they get at it and it provides a re it's a consistent structure that can be applied across pretty much any mathematical idea right this isn't constrained yeah. to number problems or algebra or anything that that's really nice is is this something that you would do with your trainee teachers and and can can they access it at their level of experience or do you need do you need a bit more experience under under the bonnet to to really get the most out of this so that's a really interesting question. The answer at the moment is no. I haven't mm. talked to my students about this because I don't think that they have the prior knowledge. Like, yes. I don't think they form those ideas. It's so my trainees come back in February for two weeks and it's on the list as as potential at the moment in terms of what we might work with them on at that point. I see. We, they've, been, they've been in schools yeah. now. At, I see. Yes. Yeah. So it's really interesting, like redesigning the program when you have to think, OK, what is it that a novice can access mm. a novice teacher with with you have to almost work with on a on a on a kind of a belief that they've had zero school experience. Yes, because yes. It, it's not really a requirement anymore. It used to be a requirement that you'd, you'd spend a week in primary schools and that you'd probably visit the secondary school. I mean, obviously, we encourage it. Um, so, so you've got to kind of work on the premise that like, what can a novice teacher, what can a novice teacher access with having had no, no classroom experience whatsoever? I mean, some of them do, but you have to work on the, on the kind of premise that, 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 that they don't, uh, because some of them won't. So, um, that, that's, that's a really interesting part of designing uh, a PGC program and, and the, the challenge frameworks that I've talked about. I didn't feel were appropriate initially. So it'd be really interesting because I think we'll probably work with them on it um, during during the time that they come back in February. We've talked a little bit about how to kind of adapt a worksheet, which is right. sort of almost looking at, at fixed, but kind of less formal. We talked about strategies, um, more like what you, you, you mentioned in terms of like, what does that question look like with a bit of algebra? What does yes. that, what does that topic look like with negative numbers? Um, so we've done a kind of a, a very sort of basic way of how do you, how do you make, um, a task more challenging, uh, at, at a basic level? But yes, we, we're hopefully going to unpick it a little bit more in February. Fascinating. No, I abs absolutely, absolutely love that one. And um, give us another idea then, Emma. OK, so the second one, which is the one I talk about a lot when I when I do um, done a bit of research ads. Uh, I went to the Pixel conference. I go into schools occasionally and I talk about worked examples. Um, I, I love them because I think they're very versatile, which means that it's a strategy that I think can have quite a lot of impact. Mm. Uh, I also like talking about them because I think it's one of the strategies where there's something for everyone. So what I start with is I start work talking about worked example pairs, which um, obviously you talk about in your book as well. And for many teachers, uh, that's already part of their practice. Some mm. of them, some of them not so. Um, and it's great because I talk about much like you, Craig. I mean, I've I've come from a a, a kind of a teaching experience where. 
I, I, I don't, I, I thought I was good at what I did, but actually <laughs> what transpires is I didn't, I didn't know very much. <laughs> yep. Um, and so, you know, I talk about how I used to do whipped examples. So I'd, I'd, I'd do an example. I'd do a harder one. I'd do a harder one. And then I would, I would check for understanding before the students practiced independently, but I wouldn't pair them with a yes, uh, yep. with a your term and we know from from the paper about that that that's i think are the worst outcomes doesn't it the one where you yes. just go example 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 exactly um, right so i show them that and i you know i kind of say like this is this is what i used to do um and and so we start there with with worked example pairs but then what's great about worked examples is is that they can be used in a multitude of ways so um we talk about or the book, the strategy moves on to incomplete worked examples. And we talk mm. about um, backward fading and uh, using that as a scaffold. Can we just talk a little bit about backward fading? Because this, this is something that, um, yeah, I, I, I got a bit obsessed with the research um, into this. And I know that um, like Ben Gordon on Twitter, he's always banging out an image of a worked example involving backward fading. Can, just for the benefit of listeners who perhaps aren't aware of this, can you just talk a little bit more about that, Emma, if that's okay? Yeah, so um, an incomplete worked example essentially is a, a, a bog standard um, mathematical problem where you've got all the steps, all the working out um, displayed, but you will remove one or more steps from that problem. So it could be that you remove the last step. Um, it could be that you remove a step or steps in the middle um, it could be that you remove one from the front. Uh, any of them you could do. So uh, an example might be that you put up a short division bus stop method on the board and you fill in everything except the last number in the top right. Mm, mm. Um, and so that would be backwards fading, which is where you remove the last step first. Yes, if that and makes sense. It does. And can I just clarify, because again, I didn't realize there was a, a debate into this. Emma. When I spoke to uh, Michael Pershing um, on my on my podcast, um, we both read the same research into worked examples. But the way he did them was so different to me in the sense that he didn't he uses the phrase roll them out. He didn't do them kind of the teacher on the board writing them step by step. What he did is he presents the full complete worked example or with kind of bits missing from it if he's doing the the, the was fading and the kids to use michael's phrase they read the maths they study it from start to finish but it's not being rolled out a line at a time by the teacher what what are you envisaging for this particularly with the kind of backwards fading bits and, and missing out missing out certain steps is this a complete example with bits missed out that's projected up on the board or is it being rolled out by the teacher line by line with bits being missed out if that makes sense I think it depends on when you're using it. I mean, what's interesting is that I listened to to, the, to that podcast and I felt the same that, that that you, I think, did, which was like this moment of, oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. And you go back and you think, oh, OK, well, where does that fit in with, yes, yes. you know, how I do this and, and what does it add? And yeah, so so I had a similar a similar kind of response to that. Um, uh, my, I think they can be used in different ways. So one of the ways I've seen some of the teachers I uh, work with, I work with some FE teachers um, and she used them to scaffold a worksheet. 
So on a worksheet, the, the say there was 10 questions. Mm. It was actually short division, uh, 10 questions. The first one, she'd, she'd removed the last step from it. The oh, okay. second one, she'd removed two steps, the yes. last two steps. The third one, she'd removed three steps to the point where um, I think the, the maybe the fourth question just had the bus stop set up with the numbers in the right place. And then I the see. fifth one that the students had to do completely um, themselves. So. So they can be used to scaffold practice. Yes. Um, that's an interesting way to use them. Um, I think if you're going to project them, I, I'm, t I'm torn because part of me wants to I'm say torn. it depends how many steps there are in the process. Mm. So if it's that short division example, I, I'd bung it all up. But, yes. you know, then when you look at something like simultaneous equations, how likely are students going to be able to read the math? Yes. I almost said read the math then. For I know, Kirshen. it's nice touch. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but then I also think that you have to have, you have to make sure students have a bit of an understanding of what you're teaching in order to start moving along these different types of worked examples. So an incomplete worked example I don't think you can really present to students unless they've got a, a bit of a grasp of what yes. they're doing, yes. unless it's in a structured way, like I just discussed in terms of a, a scaffold process on, mm. on, a, on a worksheet or a, or a task. So um, I, think, I think I don't know the answer to that question, but it just no. depends maybe on the context. I, th I think so. I mean, my, my instinct at the moment, so I, again, I've been wrestling with this for, for the last few months and I've reread the research and I've, I've made sure I've got hold of all those, the, the math, for example, and algebra, for example, um, uh, resources for, from the US that I know you, you talk about as well. Uh. And I, I start using those now kind of after I've rolled out an example. So if uh, uh. to you to use the phrase, so I will, I'm still of the opinion that the best way for students to get a really solid foundational knowledge of a new method, procedure or idea is if the teacher does it line by line. And again, I use silent teacher first and then narration over the top and so on. But so that students attention can be focused on one line at a time. Uh. And I think they can then better see the connection between line two and line three as opposed to if everything's there at once how do i know that they're not kind of skipping out lines and jumping and jump into different bits and so on but then i think it's then a super smart idea that perhaps even maybe before the your turn or maybe when we start to do a slightly different variation of that method or idea that perhaps then a a fully written one with either backwards fading or lines left out or, or incomplete and so on I think that for me is where it fits in, but I wouldn't like to miss out that rollout stage if it was a novel idea. That that's where I'm at at the moment. I don't know if that fits in with with your experience, Emma. I I think so. I think I tend to agree with that. I mean, what's interesting about the backwards fading is that maybe you can present that all at once because by nature of having a bit missing students have to focus their attention on each line yes. of the problem, right? They're, they're forced to do that by nature That's of being true. having to work out what's missing. Um, but as you say, in terms of it being a complete worked example, if you're looking at something like simultaneous equations, uh, I wouldn't be confident that the students understand everything that's written up mm. there especially in terms of something that the content was very new, the topic was yes. very new. 
Um, so I, I think I would agree that actually helping them to focus their attention on line by line to try and make sense of it. But then perhaps, you know, doing something to ensure that they understand the whole as well. Mm. Um, and that could be that they narrate, like uh, they annotate yes. a complete work yeah. example. That's a really useful way of, of, of checking that they've grasped each line. So they have to write something about what that line means and why you're doing it. Um, but, yeah, it feels to me that that step by step might be more helpful, certainly initially. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I'll tell you what, whilst we're on this, Emma, this is the other thing that's been running through my head, and I'm hoping you can solve this issue for me as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> obviously, in the in the math, math by, by example, in the algebra by example resources, they're big into uh, mistakes and students identifying mistakes in worked examples and mm. articulating why and so on. And if you read the research um, into this, again, it's, it's, it's obvious stuff that um, for kids to be able to understand something, it's not enough just to be able to know how to get it right. You've got to be able to identify where things are going wrong and explain why and so on and so forth. And um, where, where do mistakes in worked examples fit into to your kind of teaching or your introduction of an idea? When would they come into into the kind of chain of events? Um, well, in terms of the strategy, that's what we talk about next. And the strategy is structured around when you might use these types of worked examples in a learning episode or a unit mm. of work. So we're, we're moving down, moving through um, in terms of time uh, a learning episode now because as you say stu students can't work out what's wrong if they don't know what's right yes um, so they've got to have a very good grasp at this point I think of of the the topic or the concept that you're trying to teach um, because there is a risk. I mean, what we're what we're doing is we're explicitly exposing misconceptions to students. Yes, and I yes. think you may have been part of of, of um, being trained when, you know, I, I kind of almost liken the idea of exposing students to a misconception as being almost like catching a disease. Like if we <laughs> if we show them this misconception, they will get it. They will get yeah, the misconception. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think I think the idea of purposefully exposing students to misconception wasn't something that that we thought was useful mm. um and now obviously we we believe that it is um but there is still that issue isn't there of, yeah, of, of when you of when you do exactly. it they, as you say they've got to know the right to appreciate yes. the wrong and i wonder just if you could be um again just just interested in your opinion on this after you've shown them the right way, whether it's by rolling out an example or a backwards fading worked example and so on, is it is then the right time to come in with the, the a wrong way or is there a bit of practice of the right way needed to kind of sandwich in between? What, what's your take on that, Emma? Oh, definitely a bit of practice. Mm. I think they really need to to have have some practice under their belt yes. um, in order for for. Because, as I say, there is the risk that you show them this misconception and what you end up doing is not not helping them to understand more deeply. You actually end up yes. confusing them because yes. they look at the misconception and, and they almost see a mistake that they feel that they could make. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. That's and, true. and so they need, yeah, they need to be fairly confident that they know what the right way is and why before yes. they can start to unpick what this student has done wrong. And so, yes, I would say that there's definitely time between um, the other 
using the other types of worked examples and there's some practice before you before you present um incorrect worked examples yes, and it right. and it mean it could be something that you that you present later down the line in terms mm, of yeah, retrieval yeah. practice you know it could be that actually that's a really good framework for retrieval practice that a week later or a month later or whatever it is um because the, the great thing about the algebra by example and maths by example materials is that they combine let me get this right so they combine a worked example pair yes. with an incorrect worked example yes. with student self-explanation prompts yeah, yeah so there's all this stuff going on which makes it really quite powerful but also quite difficult for, for students so they're subject knowledge their their ability to, to do that topic and understand it has to be pretty secure yes fascinating again it's just it's ridiculous isn't it that i i mean i taught for 12 years without thinking too much about worked examples and now it's i'm, I'm a little bit obsessed by it and it's, yes. scary, it's scary isn't it that it you is. can go that far through teaching and but what's nice when i when i talk to teachers now it seems to be a lot more at the forefront of, of their thoughts whether it's through training or whether it's I mean, heard all the teachers speak about it. It seems to be something that, that teachers do think a lot more about. Whereas, yeah, I mean, maybe it was just my my, my naivety. But I think, again, you're, you're in the same boat, aren't you, Emma? We just we just didn't think about these things for mm. some reason. It's very I strange. mean, I find it incredulous that I would plan a lesson and my worked examples were like an afterthought in terms <laughs> of yes. what numbers I would use, like what actual question i would use for the worked example yes um yes and i and i'm and i'm gobsmacked that that that's that that's what <laughs> yes. i used to do but but you're right like i just didn't know any better um and it's interesting because now i would be so careful about that um and not only about what worked example i would use but in terms of the the numbers and the structure of the 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 question that i would use for the worked example um, and I think, you know, there's, there's one of your top 10 things that you wish you'd known at the at the end of your book is something about um, like the, the worked examples and, and pra practice questions mm. are the most important part of yeah. our I'm sort of poorly quoting, you know, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember what I wrote myself. No, something something that, along those lines. I, I do use it when I talk to trainees, something about how important our examples yes, are and our yes. practice is in terms of um, in terms of our planning. And I, I just don't I didn't used to give much thought to that, which no, is just no, crazy no. because it is crazy. I used to, you know, I thought I thought I was quite a good teacher. So, I know. <laughs> I know. you know, um, I think we've been on a similar journey in that sense. So um, yes. going back to just very quickly, going back yeah, to um, the the example the algebra by example and math by example materials mm. um i just want to talk a little bit about them for people who who don't know yeah, much about them um so the uh it's an american uh institute they're called SERP, the strategic education research partnership and they do some great work and one of the things that's come out of some of their research is is, is these um the these resources that we're talking about and they'll be one of my big three so they'll be on the is it the show notes exactly at the end right. yeah right. so They've done them for algebra, um, and it and it it's based on the American curriculum, but it 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 references um, really well with with ours as well. And they've just provided loads of incorrect worked examples that students can tackle with some self explanation prompts, which are questions like what What have they done wrong? Why did they do this? 
Um, and then there's also a worked example pair. So then they, they, the students are tasked with doing it correctly, doing an example that they give correctly. And, and this is a really powerful structure that they've come up with based on, on the research that they did. So there's, there's only, uh, they, they only exist at the moment for algebra. Um, but there's also some for year, oh no, it's grades four and five math. I'm going to say math mm. now because that's how they, <laughs> that's what they call it. Um, which is our year five and six. Uh, but what's, so that's great for primary, but I think what's really interesting is that in a secondary context, I think they're really powerful for key stage three and foundation GCSE. Because as we know, a lot of that content is repeated over and over. So what I suppose I want to say is don't be put off by the fact that the math by example materials are seemingly for primary. Um, I think if you, if you look at them, that they're great and you could see them working in a key stage three class. Um, right. and a foundation GCSE. Yeah, I, I agree 100% on that, Emma, because the other thing as well is, as, as we've touched upon, it's one thing being able to get something right. It's a whole other ball game, being able to identify why something's wrong, articulate why, communicate, and so on and so forth. Um, and that's, that's a different type of understanding which I, I would argue needs to come later on from when you're originally introduced to the idea so if kids have met an idea in year six being asked challenged then to kind of pick apart somebody's attempt to, to reproduce that idea in year seven and year eight is is a really smart thing to do and also if you read the examiner's reports on questions that ask kids to um, discuss describe explain anything that needs requires them to write they're absolutely woeful at it and this is a really good a really good way of helping Helping them get better at that written communication. So yeah, I I think there are actually amazing resources. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, and oh, and sorry, just, go on, Emma. just one thing, like in terms of the exam, what we're now seeing at GCSE are questions that have incorrect worked examples. Yeah, you know, so right. so and so did this wrong. Uh, do you or so and so did this work? Do you agree or disagree? So. Um, that it's starting to to be something that we we need to expose our students um, to. I mean, I'm not saying that we teach to the test, but but you know, if those kind of questions are going to come up on the exam, then our students need to be more experienced at practicing those types of questions. Absolutely right. Fantastic. Well, that is two cracking choices so far. Do you have a, you have a third one from your book, Emma, that you wanted to talk about? I do, and I'm going to go for something a bit more simple. Okay. Um, because we talked about two quite in-depth strategies. Mm, mm. Um, actually, just sorry, I'm going to go back one minute. There's yeah, there's sure. one last type of worked example that I failed to mention. Okay. Um, it's the last one in the, in the sequence in the strategy. And actually, this is one of those strategies uh, that is really useful for the more experienced teacher. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to build, build up to it. Just recap, recap the flow of these worked examples. Apologies, build, I will. Build, no, 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 okay. no, build up. It'll add a bit of drama to this. All right, then. Okay, <laughs> we need a drum roll or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the strategy is called worked examples, and we look at lots of different ways in which you can use worked examples. So there's worked example pairs. Yep. Then there's incomplete worked examples. Yep. incorrect worked examples. Yep. And then finally, there's this one that I've totally failed to mention, uh, which is one of the more interesting ones, I think. Uh, it's called strategy comparison worked examples. Yeah, I'd not heard of these. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me about these. Um, so so the idea here is you, you have this group of year sevens in front of you and they multiply uh, using different methods. And it's that age old problem where 
You've got some of them doing grid methods, some of them doing yes. column methods. <laughs> and as a teacher, you're like, oh, what, you know, what, what do I do? Like, how yeah. do I deal with this? Do I say, okay, everyone has to do this method, the method that, that I want to do to model? Do I somehow allow them to do what they want and then end up modeling two different methods every time we multiply like there's there's some real issues around like how do we deal with those scenarios and 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 it's not just in multiplication there's lots of lots of times that it happens and so i don't have the answer to that question but what i do have is that i think these strategy comparison worked examples might help alleviate this problem so the idea is is that you might put a multiplication question or take a multiplication question and present the two different methods, complete worked examples side by side. And then you would ask the students, what is the same and what is different? Mm, yes. And by doing this, what they can start to pull out is where you see the same calculation happening. So another example might be, you know, if you have to find the area of a compound shape that's um, an L shape. Yep. So some people will do a horizontal cut, some people will do a vertical cut, and some people do that crazy thing where they make the whole thing into a rectangle and then (laughs) take away the area of the space, which (laughs) I I always, I remember first seeing that student doing that and just being like, wow, I I never even thought of doing it that way. So again, you might present that with the three different workings out, the, the the worked examples, and you say to them, like, what, where, where are the same calculations? Like, why mm-hmm. do these method, different methods yield the same solution? And I, and I think that in doing that, students can start to get a better understanding of why different methods work. So I'm not necessarily solving that problem of, of, which method they're going to do, but I'm helping them to get an understanding of why both methods work. I think that's super, it's, it, it's super, super, super important. Um, yeah, I, again, if we, if, if we go, we shouldn't always do this, but if we go back to just the, 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 the nature of exams these days, that is often something that pops up, having to discuss, compare, contrast different ways of approaching things. And as you say, it, it, it solves, a, a, well, it goes a long way to solving a major problem that teachers have, which is dealing with these different methods. It exposes kids to different ways of thinking about things. Perhaps one method that they've used all their life, all of a sudden they see one that makes more sense to them. I think, and what I like about it, Emma, is it's it's efficient, it's practical, and it's it's efficient. I think it's, a, yeah, it's it's a lovely way to to round off that, that worked example um, process. Yeah, fantastic. And there's um, just, just one more interesting part of on that is that also you can use it to think about fluency of methods as well. So if you take an example of um, five uh, open brackets, X plus three close brackets equals 45. It's really hard to talk about maths in this way, isn't it? <laughs> um, and, and then so what I've done with that is I've got two different solutions, one where you expand first. Yes. And one where you divide by five first. Yes, yes. And of course, in that instance, dividing by five is really effective. Yes. It makes it yes. far more simple. 
Yet, when you ask teachers, and I'll put my hands up, admit to this as well, like I would teach my students to expand first. 100%. 100%, And and so also what you can start to do is try and look at, I mean, this is, this is really far down the line in terms of where we are in a, in a unit of work or a learning episode. We're right at the end now in terms of unpicking some of these things. Mm. Um, but, but what you can start to do is, is sort of say, you know, like, what is it about this scenario that makes, I give each solution a name, a student name. So it might be like, what is it about this scenario that makes Mamie's solution more effective than Mullen's? And obviously it's yes. because 45 is divisible by five. And so it's like, what if it was 46? What if that equaled 46? Well, you're back to expanding first. But the idea being that maybe we can help students like look at the numbers and make some decisions, some fluent decisions based on what they've got in front of them rather than going, oh, look, there's brackets I always expand yes it's a big aim it is yeah (laughs) no and uh, yeah it well it's 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 all great stuff Emma and as you say it's 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 having these strategies and then it's knowing when to use them and I agree with you it's it's further down the line once kids have experienced confidence they've developed fluency and so on and so forth that they're ready to have these kind of in-depth discussions and I think a mistake I've made in the past is is again it's curse of knowledge isn't it it's bringing these in too Mm. early when kids haven't had a chance to build their world and, and get these experiences under their belts wow fantastic well okay so now let's go for your your third one um so we've done yeah as you say we've done two big old meaty ones yeah in terms of kind of depth of knowledge in terms of challenge and then in terms of worked examples so what what have you got lined up for us to to bring this discussion to a close on on your wonderful book um so the last one as i as i sort of started to say before i went backwards is um just it's just a bit more of a simple one and it's about language okay um so i i got really interested in in language when i was writing the book which i hadn't really before i mean i was a bit flippant towards the idea of how important language was in maths because it was maths um not english you know and 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 i feel terrible about that now because um it's really important the language we use massively important so um We've got sort of, I talk in the book about the two groups of problematic words that we have in, in the maths vocabulary. And that's, that's firstly words that exist only in our subjects. So something like integer or hypotenuse. And they're problematic because, because they're low frequency, because they're only mm. used in mathematics. Students aren't exposed yes. to them very often and that makes them problematic. It's hard for students to remember what they mean. Um, and then secondly, possibly more problematic are words that have the same spelling and pronunciation as other words. They're called pol- polysemous words, which I didn't know until I read oh, the nice. book, isn't well, it? There you go, it's a yeah, new fact nice. for everyone. Um, so <laughs> words like mean, factor, yes. odd, yes. Um, and they're more problematic because I think the students will recall their first, the, the meaning that they first come across, which is often the one that's not the mathematical one. So what I'm saying is like maybe when we're talking about the word odd, they're thinking about unusual things exactly you know and so we've got to kind of acknowledge that and and remember that they might be thinking about something else at that point because these words have to have deal meaning um and so one approach that that's a really lovely one is called in other words um and it works like this in a kind of narrative so if a student said in answer to a question uh to find the area of a rectangle you multiply length by the width as a teacher, you might say area, in other words. 
And that's a prompt for students to define that word that's just been used. Oh, nice. Yes. So it's kind of something that you would do very, very consistently. So another um, example of a, of a exchange is a teacher might say one method that allows us to solve a quadratic equation is called completing the square quadratic in other words and that prompts the students to just define the words that have been used in the sentence and i saw it i saw it being used i saw it being used in um in a school um in oasis academy south bank where it was a whole school policy that they would constantly um try and get students to revisit definitions of of uh, vocabulary by just saying the word in other words and then getting them to, to to define it and it was an incredible really powerful and just on a practical level what are they doing that are they writing down their definition or is it kind of choral response or just thinking on their own what, what what seems to work best with this in other words approach i mean what i saw was um wait time and then identify a student to respond yes yes so so that everybody thinks so you wait until after the wait time to give them the student name so everybody's thinking about it and then you you uh you get a definition i mean there's no reason why you couldn't write it potentially it's probably going to take longer might be it's certainly more difficult for students um and it's it's very interesting again this is just just loads of thoughts running through my head i've been having some conversations with um, with danny quinn um, head of maths at michaela recently and she's very big into getting kids to to write things down even if you don't then go to that child just so they're they're a bit more invested in the process as opposed to you could well imagine some students who who during the wait time aren't thinking and if you ask uh, them a question maybe they'll start the thinking then but to ensure that that effort's in there yeah the more i think about it the more I, I i want kids writing things down during kind of wait time even if i don't necessarily see their responses on mini whiteboards and so on and so forth um yeah that it's fascinating can i, I i'm going to throw a fact back at you emma do, do you know this one so um dylan william told me this well i think when he was on the podcast for the second time um the word similar is one of the worst ones for this because similar is it's terrible because if uh. kids take the meaning of similar um, that exists outside the world, uh, outside of the math classroom, into the math classroom. It's the worst one of them all because it it it's kind of close to the mathematical meaning, but far enough away that kids are going to get things completely wrong. Because if they think, well, these two rectangles are similar because they look a little bit alike, well, that's terrible because obviously similar has got a strict mathematical meaning. Dylan's fact is that Welsh kids do better on similar shape questions than uh, English speaking students because the word for similar, there are two different words for the two different meanings of similar in Welsh, the mathematical word and the the kind of non-maths meaning. That's a good fact, isn't it? That 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 is amazing facts. Thank you, Craig. It's the only way to respond, really, with my Welsh accent, isn't it? I am Welsh, just to clarify, listeners. I'm allowed to do it. Yes, it is an incredible fact. Yeah. So I like that one. Definitely. I think it would be really interesting to see if that's replicated in in other languages, isn't it? Yes. That actually where their words are better or, or, or more poorly defined or 
have more yes. meanings. Yeah, really interesting language. Fascinating. It is. And again, as you say, Emma, I just didn't think about it. It's it's ridiculous, this, isn't it? So I'm yeah. not thinking about words examples. I'm not really thinking about the language I use. It's classic, again, curse of knowledge. I'm using overly technical definitions that the kids don't have a flipping clue what's what's going on with. But they obediently copy them down in their books as if copying magically makes them understand them. And all this kind of nonsense that, yeah, I just never really thought about. But yeah. Um, what were fantastic. we thinking about, Craig? I know. I t- I, well, it was all whether my learners were visual, auditory or kinesthetic. I mean, that was my top priority. But yeah. And what, we brain, live and learn. what brain gym starter we were going to exactly, use next exactly. exactly right. We live and learn. We live and learn. We do. Right, Emma. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is something, I'm going to be honest, um, it's completely new to me, this. Um, I saw it on a tweet. I, th- I think from Peps, I, th- I think I first saw it tweeted out. Um, and it's this the learning curriculum and I dug a little bit into it but at the same time I didn't want to do too much digging because I, I wanted you to tell me about it and um, yeah so I could I kind of revel in that fresh excitement so for listeners who are perhaps in a similar situation to me that they, they don't know what this learning curriculum is give us a bit of background T- tell us about it and your involvement okay well we we have this kind of situation in teaching where by once finish teachers finish um it their their teacher training there's no kind of formal continuation of training um and people sort of have sort of cpd provision ad hoc so there's there's some provided by the school and if they're lucky they can they can go out to courses but we kind of know that diminishing school budgets means that it's much less likely um, that teachers are able to to go on external um, training these days, uh, meaning that, that often it falls to the um, department head or the CPD lead in the school to kind of provide that training. Um, but but the question is, like, who trains them? Yes. Um, and, you know, having been a, a, a CPD lead for a school, um, you know, you kind of you read books and and you read blogs and you get on Twitter and, you know, there's there's people like the EEF who are bringing research um, to, to kind of the, the doorsteps of our of our schools. Um, but it's really time consuming and it's really hard to deliver training on things that you you kind of feel like you only half understand or half know about. Um, and the same can kind of be be said for for ITE tutors in the sense that, like, who trains the trainers? Right. Um, so. Myself and uh, a few colleagues are on the Ambition Institute's Teacher Education Fellows Program. Um, and with a, with a pilot cohort, so we're, we're helping kind of um, inform this, this teacher education um, fellowship program. And one of the things we wanted to try and answer was this question, like who, who trains, who trains the, the CPD lead? Um, and so one of the things we did was we were learning so much about the science of learning and we wanted to kind of document all this stuff somewhere, not not just for us, but to answer this problem for, for CPD leads to be able to access as well. Um, and what started as kind of an idea about logging this information turned into the learning curriculum. And so essentially what it is, is a handbook for any teacher educator. So whether it's um, a member of S who has responsible for CPD in their school, um, whether it's an ITE tutor, um, it, it's a handbook that allows them or helps them 
to plan and deliver training to teachers on the science of learning. Um, and it's, it's set up, it's got three parts. So uh, the first part is kind of the content, if you like. So it's structured into sections um, that are based around key questions for teachers. So how can teachers help students to attend to learning? How can teachers help students focus on what matters? How can teachers help students encode information in long-term memory um, and so on? And for each of those questions, uh, we provide an introduction, which is kind of details about it, um, a model, so uh, a simple visual representation of it, um, which Ollie Cav helped us with, um, a practical demonstration, which are great. Um, so these are kind of worked examples to use with teachers during training, which I've done with my trainees and they're fabulous. Really, really good um, examples and non-examples of like this thing in practice, um, how you might apply it um, and how you can assess teachers understanding of these things. Um, and then there's also kind of guide uh, pointers for further reading. Um, and then the other two parts, one is uh, a suggestion on, on, on the framework or the structure that you might want to use for your training session. So kind of like a template sort of session plan. Um, and then part C is, is a glossary of terms because there's so much language that we use in the science of learning um, that it's really useful to kind of try and pin those down and define them. Um, and so that document together is, is what we refer to as the learning curriculum. Fantastic. And again, it goes back to something we've been talking about earlier on, Emma, how, um, again, a mistake I've made for many years is to to approach the training or working with other teachers in a completely different way that I would approach the, the training and, and work with, with students. But again, it's people learn essentially in the same way. And if, if these strategies and structures aren't built in, then whatever we say isn't isn't going to stick. So, yeah, I think it's, it's an incredibly important um, document, incredibly important piece of work. Can I ask if you were to pick out like a couple of things that you think are perhaps either the most pertinent or perhaps another way to think of it is, is the things that are most often overlooked whenever teachers deliver training or, or, or do work with other adults? What, what would they be, do you think? What are some of the, the, the key takeaways from, from this curriculum? Um, well, I think there's two questions in there, really. So the first question is, like, what do people overlook when they train adults? Yes. And, and I think you've also sort of alluded to the to the answer there is that they neglect to realize that it is the same as teaching students. Yes, yes. And for some reason, we throw everything out the window <laughs> when we teach adults. Um, and I don't know why that is. I don't know why. We don't draw those parallels um, very easily. Do you, do you know what I think? I've been thinking about this. I have a mini theory on this. So I can only speak from my experience. But I always yeah. I, I think to myself, well, when I'm a teacher, I'm, I'm essentially kind of the authority figure. Um, and therefore, it's uh, if I say my students should do something in some way, then I, I, I'm, I'm right to do that because I'm the teacher and so on and so forth. But when I work with other teachers in a training thing, I think, well, for want of a better phrase, we're all equals. So we're all adults. Um, so I wouldn't feel right saying, OK, we're going to do this bit in silence and then I'm going to assess your understanding and do this, which is, again, complete nonsense. But it's it's that I think it's I see it as kind of a different relationship between teacher and student than teacher and, and adult learner. That that's I think that's what's been stopping me, if, if that makes sense. Mm. At all. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's definitely things like when a teacher has got their mobile phone out in a PD <laughs> yes. session. Like there's 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 like this this kind of like what what do I do? Do I do I call them on it because yes. I want to model like what's yes. happening in the classroom? Um, and and or should I call them on it because they're not engaged yes. in what we're doing? Like it's difficult. so difficult, isn't it? It's so so difficult. And I agree that there are. There are some things that are different, definitely. I think I think it's kind of the classroom management aspects are different. Um, but yeah, in terms of like how we structure the learning, it, it's like we should be defaulting to the you know the the building on prior knowledge, um, retrieval practice for for things that we've learned about in the past in terms of PD that we should be using worked examples where we can that it should have some element of practice in it. Um, in the same way that it would in the classroom, and I don't know. Do those things does does like the the shift in like the power or the authority that should it affect those things? Oh, it definitely shouldn't. It definitely shouldn't. But I I wonder whether it does a little bit. And I'll tell you what. I, I, again, I'm going to make another confession here, Emma, and this is going to make me sound terrible. But I'm I'm the world's worst um, kind of audience member or participant in these kind of training sessions because I'll go in there and I'll straight away go and sit next to somebody who's my mate um, so I can talk to them during little bits bits of it. I will again, particularly if it's the end of a school day, I'm I'm a bit knackered, my my mind's wandering a little bit. As soon as I hear something like right, discuss discuss it with the person next to you, I'm thinking, oh for God's sake, this is the last thing I want to do. Let me just <laughs> let me just sit there in silence so I can just daydream and so on. It's ter it's absolutely terrible. And if my kids were doing this, I'd be straight on to them and I would be saying to them, you're not going to learn anything. You're not going to remember anything at all here. But I wonder again if uh, if again there's a, there's a there's a slight. I mean, this is why there's a need. Need for, for for this this learning curriculum um, and these these guidelines to, to combat teachers like me who are terrible participants in in training again I don't know if, if that's something you you've come across or, or can relate to are, are you are you a good uh, are you a good example um, in of, of an audience member in these training sessions well I like to think so but it's probably <laughs> not the case um, no I'm not I'm no I mean. God, I'm going to confess to something now. Don't tell anyone this, no, babe. We'll Obviously, quiet. this we'll isn't going to work. We'll keep this quiet. <laughs> but I went to um, a governance training session recently, and I, I, I had to leave. <laughs> I just, I just couldn't. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that's terrible, isn't it? But I just, I mean, it was, you know, it was. I was. There were other things going on. Like I was. Peps was out, so I had a babysitter, and I was at this governance session, and it was the evening, and I'd been yes, at work all day. Yes. And you know, I mean, they did the best job they can, but their pedagogy was terrible. Yes. Um, and so we, we had a break, and I made my excuses and left. And I feel really <laughs> terrible, but you're right. Like yes, I'm. I'm not a great. Um, participant in in training sessions see, although I, I suppose it depends on the quality of them like yes, I like to uh, think that if it was really useful that um and certainly that the stuff that we've done with the the fellowship has been really powerful and I like to think we'd have to check with Harry on this Harry Fletcher Wood who runs it I like to think that I'm a, I'm a good participant in that <laughs> but it, it it's interesting because what what I think sometimes happens is we 
we we we almost flip into a, a student kind of version of ourselves. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, a bad student version as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely, maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, and it's really interesting that you pick up on. Uh, I'm going to talk about the the, the program that we've sure. developed for the PGs later. But one of the things you picked up on then is like you you said, oh, um, you know, there's a session in the afternoon, and I go in and I sit next to um, yep. you know, my mate, and we have a chat. Yep. Well, one of the really interesting things that we've done with the the program is that we have a seating plan. Ah, wow. That is and interesting. And we do, isn't it? And we do it for two reasons. One is that reason there, right, yep. is that we know that people learn best when they're not sat next to their friends, <laughs> yes. right? So because they're a distraction. So yeah. one is like the genuine reason for learning, um, but also that, that we, mod- we do loads and loads of modeling. Um, and, and so it's modeling that that would be an expectation in their teaching. Ah, uh, yes. Um, but but it's also probably a little bit controversial. So um, yeah. I mean the the re- the reason I bring this up is, um, and again I, I want you just just to talk a little bit more about this learning curriculum in a second. Is that one thing that I've come to the realization of over the last probably only twelve months, and this is so bloody obvious. But again, it's it's taken me fourteen years to to, to realize this. Is that you can have the best designed lesson or structure or whatever that's based on all the findings from cognitive science and research into memory and motivation and all this kind of thing but if the 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 kids or whoever the people that you're trying to teach if they don't put the effort in then it's going to fall flat on its face and it's it's trying to find ways and and i think the kind of structure is an important part of this particularly if it's got check for understanding built into it but also explaining the purpose of why we're doing something and why it's super important that you listen and put effort in and so on and so forth without those bits it almost doesn't matter how the quality of what's being said and being presented if it, if it doesn't go hand in hand with with the effort to get the most out of it from the participants there is a danger isn't there Emma that, that it can all fall flat in its face and I think that's a that's a bit of training that I've overlooked for many many years realizing that it, it almost doesn't matter what I do unless I have the buy-in from the people that I'm doing it for if, if that makes sense at all. Mm. yeah and I think that's more important well, I think it's important for both adults and students, mm. but I think that it's easier for an adult to just sit in training and, and not sort of engage. Yes. Um, because of maybe the different expectations in classroom management. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I need to think about this more more carefully. Um, maybe that's not true at all. Students can quite easily do the same, can't yeah, they? Yeah, I think both. I think both. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I'll tell you what, let, let me ask you this, Emma, and this may be an impossible question to answer, but let's say we've got um, a listener tuning in here who is delivering some training. Maybe it's um, an after-school inset, or maybe they're doing a twilight session, or, or maybe they're doing a full-day full day work with, with somebody, or even perhaps they're doing, they're a mentor of a PGCE student in their school or an NQT or something like that um are there, are there any just like you did with um, your, your book are there any kind of practical things that they could put into place kind of tomorrow little tweaks that they could do or a little feature that they could build in that would enhance that that delivery of that information based on the work that you've put into to this learning curriculum is there anything at all that's a quick fix for want of a better phrase um i i think that's pretending that you're planning a lesson for students is probably a really useful mindset to be in because maybe that then 
helps us have all those features that yes. we have in our lessons that are yes. really effective then also in our sessions yes. perhaps that's nice because it's not it's not that there's different strategies it's like the same strategies that we would use in the classroom but just for some reason and I'm guilty of this in the past as well we just don't plan in the same way um and and it is it, it is hard it's hard to kind of you know maybe do like a mini whiteboard task where you get everyone to show their board because it just feels a little bit <laughs> different it feels funny for some reason but it, it shouldn't because the teachers in the session know that that's a really good thing yes. for them to be doing in terms of checking for understanding um and so i don't know maybe we, maybe we just need to 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 do that to, to to try that more and that that kind of feeling of it being an odd thing to do just goes perhaps yes uh, but certainly being in the mindset of you're not like i like to sometimes think oh i'm just planning i'm going to do my lesson planning now and and okay my lesson is a training session but it's still planned as if it's a lesson and 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 it's just maybe a mind shift uh mindset shift that that helps us remember to use all those strategies that we already use in our classroom yeah, that's super useful. That's super useful. And is is there anything else about the the learning curriculum that you feel is important that that listeners should be aware of, Emma? And and again, where where can they find out more about this, and and how can they get the most out of it? So uh, it's hosted on Ambition Institute's website, and it'll be in the big three, so the link will be there. Yes. Um, but basically, it's it's a really useful document for teacher educators to find out about how find out for themselves more about the science of learning and then how they might share that with their teachers. Like that's its aim. Um, and it does that in a really useful way in terms of examples, non-examples, a model, a worked example, a practical demo. And, and you, you know, you can pick and choose which bits of those that you want to use with your staff. Um, but it's a really nice kind of tool for, helping teachers who might not otherwise get a chance to kind of spend time thinking about the science of learning because of this problem whereby they don't have like structured continuing CPD. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that's the learning curriculum. Fantastic. As I say, wonderful document, and we'll definitely link to that. Uh, right, Emma. So our final big thing I want to talk about, and it is a big one, but what's nice is you've alluded to a lot of the issues that we're going to discuss here earlier on in the conversation, is this notion of, of training teachers. Um, it's been a while on the podcast since I've, I've spoken about this. I had my old PGCE uh, tutor on from, from Nottingham a couple of years back, Steph, but Again, from my from my conversations with you, and also from my conversations with 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 other people, and including Colin Foster, I'm very much aware that you do you approach teacher training very differently. You have some quite innovative ways of of going about things, and I really want to want to dig into those. But to kick things off, and. Um, I'm interested. I'm always interested on the podcast about talking about planning lessons. And when we have a practicing teacher on, I always ask them about their lesson planning process. But 
what I thought would be nice to dig in with you is is how your how you help support your novice teachers to plan lessons and in particular what what difficulties do they encounter because I look back at when I first started teaching and my lessons were terrible Emma they were absolutely woeful so I wonder I wonder how are how are your trainee teachers approaching lessons planning the planning of lessons and and what can you do to 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 guide them given that they don't have you know 20 years of experience to 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 draw so one thing I have learnt about what we've done with our new programme recently is that we haven't cracked this particular problem, this how difficult it is to plan lessons. And I've got sort of some ideas of, of what I can do to change that moving forward. Um, but I think the the reason that it's so difficult is that it's it's a massively complex cognitive task and it's like it's internal like we sit there and as teachers we make masses of minute decisions about what goes where and what we do when and and, you know what's our learning objective and and you know which practice task is best and what what example we're going to use and and how we're going to work with this particular student who's difficult and and all of this thing's going on and, and none of it is visible and that's what's what the problem is like it's really hard to replicate something that's not visible yes um you can you can look at student at, at lesson plans and we do look at lesson plans a lot but that's not really conveying the thought process that has been gone through in order to get that to that point so that's why it's really really hard to teach lesson planning mm. um and one of the things, one of the features of the program is this idea of, of trying to make decision making visible. Mm. And that's fairly, well, not easy to do, but it, it's easier to do in the teaching part. So, you know, whether a teacher might decide to do another work example or not based on feedback from many whiteboards. Like you can practice that, but this this lesson planning process, it's much harder to unpick when those decisions are being made because there's so many of them. Yes. Um, I, I think anyway, this is as far as I've got in terms of thinking about it. Um, so so one of the big things is practice. Right. Practice is massively important in anything we do. Um, and so so there's a part of it that's like they they need to practice lots and and they get better and 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 it's really interesting i had a conversation with a mentor this week who who was doing that thing where they're like oh well you know they're 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 on a i think they're on a they're on a 40 percent timetable of a normal class teacher at the moment so it's Mm. not even 40 percent of a full timetable yes it's like well what are they doing with all their time yes and it's back to the curse of knowledge isn't it it's like actually lesson planning but that's what they're doing, lesson planning. Yes, it's like yes. lesson planning is taking up all this time. Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 a really difficult nut to crack. And we did some work on it this year, but we haven't done it well enough. And I think what the key to it is, is breaking it down into parts, which we do because we do kind of practice mini teachers. 
But we practice we practice more the enactment rather than the planning. Mm. And I think that we need to practice the planning more as well, because you kind of figure that if someone's like doing the enactment, like actually doing the the the, 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 the explanation or whatever, then that they've gone through the planning process yes. and they have, but they've done that alone and they haven't done that in a structured way and we haven't talked about the planning and we haven't like kind of almost given some sort of pathway through that planning um and so you can see some of the planning evident in the explanation but it's not explicit um and so we're gonna look at so i'm gonna work out how how do we make that process more explicit Wow, I've got tons of questions to ask you here, Emma, just, just on this. Just on a practical um, level, the lesson plan, um, again, well, I know this is often the um, the kind of the bane of, of, of many student teacher or NQT's lives, the fact that they have to fill in these lesson plans, and often then they're seen as kind of a bit of a, a an admin necessity they're not they're not actually made, informing them about their lesson it's just like boxes they have to fill in and blah 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 um how do you make that actually filling in of the lesson plan a useful activity do you have a certain structure or template or advice that you give um, your novice teachers to, to make the filling in of that document as useful as possible now i'm caught between a rock and a hard place here <laughs> nice. because um the, the 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 template that we use is kind of mandated at a higher level yes yep um so i think that it could be made more useful yes um and i get i get this idea that trainees think that it's administrative um but i think the 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 idea behind it is that it makes sure that that thinking has been done. Yes. And I wonder, you know, is maybe the lesson plan isn't the best way to evidence that that thinking or support that thinking process. Um, I it It's. There's definitely it can definitely be done better. And I don't mean not use a lesson plan. Um but, but, you know, when, when you hear trainees or, you know, a majority of trainees feeling that it's not productive, then there's clearly something that's not right. Yes. Um, I don't know what the solution is. Well, what, um, uh, well a, a couple of things. Is, is there anything that you, well, if you were to look at a, a lesson plan template, and it's interesting you say about the mandated things, because often like trainees will go into schools and schools will have a template that they, they have to, all their teachers have to use for, for lesson plans. So often it's it's out of out of teachers control. Um, is there any um, if anybody's listening to this who does have control either o over their own lesson plans or is in control of um, the school's template for, for using, is there any whether it's a key question or a key feature or a key aspect of that template that you think is 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 the most important one to to include and and for teachers to to consider is it is it that simple is there is there something that can be put on that lesson plan that can actually really get the the the, the teacher thinking about the right things i think anything that stops it becoming a list of um what 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 will happen in the lesson like I'm going to do this, this yes, task, and then this yes. task. Anything that stops that is probably useful. 
Um, so that's kind of not answering the question, but but. Um, I mean, it's helpful because that's often the thing that takes up a lot of time as well, right? Listen, I'm going to do this, this and this. So if if that goes, is there anything that, that kind of steps in its place? How, how do you make this thinking visible? What, what are the kind of questions? I guess what, what are the questions that you are asking your your trainee teachers outside of this kind of filling in the template that elicits and makes that thinking, uh, that invisible thinking visible? The The... It become does it become visible when trainees teach the lesson? So is it that it's not necessarily the document that's helping them to think, especially if they're filling it in afterwards? Mm. But is it something about so we break our program down into really explicit phases of a lesson and we talk about like this is a template for a basic lesson that as you practice and become more confident and competent, you will tweak, you might bin it, you will yes. change it, you will add bits. And so that what we end up with is you plan these individual parts that then together form a lesson. Um and that is the thought process. So it's the parts maybe that when they fill in the lesson plan that they haven't thought about, I suppose, is the important part. Like, is it that it's a reminder of bits they might have missed? Yes. Yeah. It, again, it, and the reason I'm kind of pushing you on this is just because it's I get I get I think it's important, uh, obviously, for trainee teachers, but 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 all teachers. And uh, another thing you said that I thought was fascinating was this enactment or the rehearsal. And this is something I again, I'd never thought to do. And it goes back to what we said about worked examples. I, I never really planned my worked examples. Um, I'd probably kind of have thought vaguely of the question I was going to ask, but not what I was going to write on the board, what my kids were going to be doing and so on and so forth but one thing I certainly never did was enact what my explanations were going to be or enact what it was what I was going to be writing on the board and um, John Mason talks about this that a lot of lesson planning is is visualizing like closing your eyes and thinking what am I going to be doing whilst I'm saying this how am I going to be moving what are my kids going to be doing and so on and so forth the this enactment part of it uh, I guess you feel is, is is a really important part of this this planning process would that be right? Definitely. Yeah. And I met with a trainee yesterday who we were talking about planning and how long it was taking um, them to, to plan lessons and, and how it, it felt a bit unsustainable. Yes. And what was interesting, actually, was when we talked about explanation, the explanation phase of the lesson, um, this trainee mentioned rehearsal mm. about how like the rehearsal part takes a while. And I was just like, yes, that's, you know, OK, it's not great that it's taken a while. Yes. But the idea that rehearsal forms part of of your lesson planning process yes. is brilliant. And and also there was, you know, there was talk about board work, like what what's the board work going to look like? Yes. Um, and those are some things that we focus on quite a lot in terms of 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 the um, the program. Uh, so thinking about things that maybe historically you or I didn't think about too much. Yes. Um, and that's 
all like the, the lesson planning process isn't just the document. Like all of this is is part of it. And the document is almost almost just like the logging of that thinking yes. process, um, which is why it feels redundant, because it's kind of often done once the thinking has been done. Yes. So a more useful document, if you like, is one that somehow supports the thinking process as you do it rather yes. than than at the end, which unfortunately they tend and that suggests that they're not fit for purpose to a certain extent if they're being completed at the end, because therefore they're not supporting the thinking yes. process as you go. Um, so there's like we haven't cracked that. There's lots to do and we will. We will try and we will try and make something that works alongside that process as they go. Um, so watch this space. Yes, I, I, I will. Let me, let me just me last question just on this particular area. Is it hard, Emma, to, to break the notion that trainees think in terms of planning individual lessons as opposed to either sequences of lessons or learning episodes or whatever phrase we want to use? Because that, that's been a recurring theme on this podcast where, where guests have spoken about how the biggest change to their teaching has been to stop thinking of, of the lesson as the appropriate unit of time in terms of their planning. Is is that something that novice teachers struggle with and, and how do you help them break that notion? Yeah, they definitely struggle with that. Um and I wonder whether it's inevitable initially mm. that actually it's harder to think of the unit of time as being over a, over a, over a topic, over a yes. period of lessons. And actually in terms of manageability and the feasibility of actually getting a lesson planned, that actually they have to focus on a slightly smaller scale. Yes. So, again, like the, the way that the program's uh, structured where I work, we've got this period where they come back to us. And that's where we'll start to build on the novice ideas that we shared with them at the beginning of the year. Um, so hopefully we'll do some work around, you know, what what does your planning for a unit of work or a learning episode look like? And it's probably non-existent. Um, and we'll probably revisit, which we've looked at before, some of um maybe Chris Bolton's work on atomization because that's really helpful in terms of like an explicit strategy that you can work um, with students and practice. They can practice how you take a whole topic and say, well, these are the things that students need to do. And then I can siphon those off into sort of areas that might be lessons. Um, So again, I mean, the, 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 the crazy thing about training teachers is once you're involved with it, you realize how much there is for them to know <laughs> yes. and learn. And I mean, we, we, we have them at uni for, I don't know, maybe eight weeks total. Yes, yeah, Um, and, and okay, they've, they've got mentors in school, so they're le- learning in school, but a lot of that is through the practice part. Um, yes. so it is, it is insane, like how much we expect are trainee teachers to learn i mean they say it takes what 10 years to expertise yes um so this idea i think i think i think the idea that you can train to be a teacher um in a year is is a little bit flawed i mean people can do it and they can be successful but it's it's really hard for them like the 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 workload is crazy and you hear about trainees staying up till god knows what hour every night writing lesson plans 
And I just think it's too steep, the amount of, of information and knowledge and skills they need in such a short space of time. It would be better placed over a long period of time um, so right. that you can build on these ideas. Because what you do is you you introduce some novice ideas, you then try and build on them. Yes. And then that's it. They go. And, and, and there's no comeback on that. There's no you can't continue to build on these ideas. Um, I mean, obviously, people do that in schools through CPD. Um, but it's less formal. I think the the early careers framework will hopefully have an impact on making that a bit more structured, that change um, from having loads of support uh, on your uh, training year um, to a bit of support on your NQT year and then nothing. Um, So hopefully the ECF will, will address some of that. It, it, um, it, it needs to, doesn't it? Because I think mm. there's, I, there's a couple of things there, again, in what you've said, Emma. The, the first is, I, I think you're right. I, I think the best, well, all we can do with the current model is to, to introduce novice ideas to, to these trainee teachers and help them develop those and then hope that there's a way to, to revisit those at some stage, whether it's in-school CPD or whether it's part of the learning curriculum document you mentioned and, and so on and so forth. But what I often see happen is that on these training programs whether it's pgce gtp or whatever it may be actually these training teachers get bombarded with quite expert ideas um that 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 need kind of time to develop whether and again like i I think of something like diagnostic questions where it took me it took me about 11 12 years to, to to really be able to use those effectively in the classroom in terms of planning for error asking responding to to the different scenarios that could happen drawing out information information discussing misconceptions and so on um, and again there's a danger i think that in this in this novice stage of, of trying to become a teacher if actually these we try and kind of bombard them with these ex- more kind of sophisticated techniques and ideas that it's a real problem because te- the, the novice teachers can't use them effectively and therefore it becomes in their heads this idea is the problem um, so i'm not going to bother with either formative assessment or i'm not going to bother with this this and this and actually it's not that at all it's just that they were not ready at that stage of their development to, to, to really get the most out of it is so is that something that you're conscious of making sure that the ideas that you're introducing to teachers throughout this training year and the limited time you've got are appropriate to their skill and experience level as opposed to you'll have some amazing ideas in your back pocket but you're thinking well actually no you, you need to get a few years under your belt before you're ready to to get the most out of these does that make any sense at all oh completely completely and, you, and you're right definitely there are things that i don't think i will work with the trainees at all on because they're too difficult i mean one interesting one that we talk about often is group work like the idea of like running successful group work is it's a really difficult skill and so you run the risk of like fudging it and ending up with teachers who because because group work's quite easy to do badly yes you end up with teachers because it's such a complex skill trying to do that when they're mastering all these other ideas and, and strategies and routines and actually ending up doing it really badly. Yes. Um, so there's definitely, I think, some sort of hierarchy mm. in terms of yes. the, the, the skills and, and structures and strategies that we use in the classroom and that some of them are not useful to trainees um, in terms of they can be uh, – too difficult to enact um, yes. well, 
but then there's the question if 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 they're not in training where, where are they yeah of course of course this is flipping difficult this summer this, this, this is this, this, <laughs> the the uh, the other thing i wanted to ask you on this just, just more generally so we talk, we've talked a lot about lesson planning and, and how that's that's an obvious area that teachers struggle with i'm, I'm thinking about other areas that, that novice teachers would struggle with and the one that screams out but I'm, I'm wondering what your take on this is is do you do anything explicitly on the behavior side of things and, and the reason i ask this is of course is if we look at the reasons teachers leave the profession in droves it's, it's workload and behavior are the, are the the kind of big two reasons and again you could imagine that that teachers go into schools are armed with all these ideas and strategies that they're going to use they've, they've planned their lesson and all this it's all good to go but we've all been in the ex those scenarios where the behavior um, in the classroom just means that we we can't teach and it's a horrible horrible feeling um is is that a part of the program or is that something that actually should be tackled by the the, the schools individually that the training teachers are in I think everyone has a responsibility to to uh, help students develop or trainees develop their classroom management skills. Um, and it, it, it is something that is built into the course. I mean, the, the, the part of the course that we've redesigned is the math strand. So they also have uh, what's called an ed studies strand, professional and educational studies, which in theory tackles the more generic skills like behavior management. Um, but we we think it's so important that it, it features in the math strand as well. Mm. Um, and we draw on uh, we draw a lot on Teach Like a Champion yes. again, because one of the features of our program is this idea. And I find this really hard to explain is this idea that if you can name something, then that enables you to more easily be able to talk about that thing, yes, right? Yes, I completely agree. Okay, and so therefore, we try and name strategies or moves, teacher moves or whatever it is. Uh, we try and give them names so that we can talk about them. Can so you give us like an a, example? Well, Teach Like a Champion is great like that because all of their strategies are named. Mm. So rather than talking in a general sense about classroom management, you can say, OK, in this scenario, it would be really useful if you used this yes. uh, TLAC strategy. Um, and then you can also practice them. So you can say, OK, today we're going to practice wait time in your yes. groups. Off you go. Yes. Um, and so that's how we try and uh, build students' ability to deal with challenging behaviour. I think what what we can't do, though, and what only comes with practice is the first time you meet a student who says, I don't know, um, I can't do this and like puts their pen down. Uh, you're not going to respond particularly well because it's the first time that you've come across that scenario. Right. So you'll do whatever you can in the moment. Um, but the next time you meet that, hopefully you will have reflected on the first time you met it or maybe the classroom teacher or the mentor gave you some feedback um, on how to deal with that. Or you brought it to uni and we talked about what the good strategies are or you looked at Teach Like a Champion or whatever. I mean, there's, there's a bit of kind of responsibility to try and find out what good responses to, to a situation like that might be. Um, but then next time then you, you come across that scenario, you've got an experience, whether it's successful or not, to kind of draw on. And I think that is 
a part of behavior management that's difficult to replicate. We mm. do a lot of scenarios, but I think the number of scenarios that you face in the classroom is vast. Yes. In terms of like they swore directly at you, they swore under their breath, they swore to yes. the person next to them. Like it's it's kind of endless. And so I think we become more and more successful having a bank of strategies to draw on that we've been explicitly taught and, and practiced, but also there's a part of that that's experience. It's like, oh, I've, I've, I've come across this particular scenario before and I said this and actually it escalated. So I've got to remember that I, it, I need to deal with that in a different way. Yes. Um, and I'm not sure how easy it is. Well, it, you, you probably could teach responses to all the different scenarios if you had the time. But we're back to the whole idea that of actually course. we don't have time to do to talk about what is a good response to every different situation that you can possibly encounter. That said, you can do things like we talk about using language of choice, which is uh, a good way to to de-escalate any situation, behavior situation you find yourself in. So the idea that, um, you know, uh, uh, you you've chosen to interrupt the lesson again. Um, now I need you to either choose to sit over there and yes. work or uh, then I'll have no choice but for this consequence or whatever it is. So, so you know, the student is making choices about what they're doing. So there are some kind of strategies that work in, in kind of all scenarios. Um, but again, there's something about this like bank of experience. And it's not just about behavior management. It's also about teaching maths, right? The first yes. time you teach adding fractions, it doesn't work. And you, you think, okay, what will I do next time? And then you get all these experiences of, of, of adding fractions and you start to refine it into, into one that hopefully works. Yes. Yeah. And that, and that's why, as you say, it takes 10 years to develop teacher expertise and, and training programs like yours can, can, the better ones can give, give training teachers a really solid foundation upon which to build. But yeah, that, that experience and that continual professional development that happens in, in over the course of um, their early stages of their career and beyond is, is crucial. And um, I, I wonder, Emma, if, because I know we have a lot of listeners who um, are mentors of, of training teachers or, or who just have them in their classrooms uh, whenever they, they first come on placements and work with them and so on. Um, knowing what you know and, and having worked with them and experienced all the things you've experienced, well, do you have any advice for, for, for teachers in schools who work with either trainee teachers or uh, NQTs or RQTs? Well, what are some of the things that would help best support them? Well, I think one of the things that I'm guilty of is I think maybe maybe a lot of teachers are guilty of is this idea that we we over feedback. Um, so we we kind of say, oh, and this was good and this was good and this was good and that's great. But then we also say, oh, and you could try this and you could try this and you could try this. And there's that saying, actually, that I picked up from um, the podcast that you did with Doug Lamov, which is this like if you try try to catch five rabbits you catch none which i i yes, love it's like my favorite yes. quote ever um <laughs> about this idea that if you're trying to to work on lots of things at once in terms of changing your your or improving your practice that you're very likely to do none of them or all of them at a very shallow uh, yes. kind of level and so we're back to this whole time thing because students have got the uh, training teachers have got to learn loads in a very short space of time but actually having sort of three, four, five targets makes it really difficult for them 
to focus uh, their attention on on one thing, which is probably uh, a more effective approach. So I think we have a tendency to maybe over feedback. Um, and there's a great document uh, that Deans for Impact uh, wrote, uh, a paper called Practice for Purpose, which looks at aligning teacher education with deliberate practice. And it talks about having really purposeful goals, easily achievable goals. And I think that is probably one of the things that that would make the difference um, because mentors are great. Like the, the time that they give up for our trainees um, in, in our experiences is incredible. Um, and so trying to get the kind of goal part, the target part right, is probably the hardest part of that. Do you know what? I'm so pleased you've said this. I'm, I'm guilty of that. I'm absolutely guilty of that. Like you, you watch lessons, you write down a load of things thinking the more I write and the more I tell them, the, the, the more useful this feedback's going to be. But it's, it's, it's nonsense. It, it's not at all. It's, it's overwhelming, both on the good things and, 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 and on the, the kind of areas for development. I really like that over feedback. That's in my yeah. head now. That's it's, very it's, powerful. It's kind of the idea that all of these things that you want to feedback on, you want to ask yourself, like, which of these things yes. would lead to the greatest change yes. in my yes. trainee's practice? And then you go, brilliant. Bin the rest for now, just yes. for now. Yes. And, and we'll focus on that one thing. And maybe they maybe they won't have developed as many things by the end of it. But those that they have will be embedded and sustainable and better implemented. I think good. I like that. That's very, very good. Fantastic. Um, let, let me ask you, Emmett. So you've obviously you do a lot of thinking and a lot of reading and, and about what's the most effective things to do with 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 trainee teachers and um, i wonder this may be an impossible question to to answer but I'm, I'm wondering what you would say are the most important things that you do currently in your train in your teacher training program that have the biggest impact and ha how that's changed over the course of the years that you've you've been running it um so what, what are the features of a, a good teacher training program um so Firstly, what's really interesting is whilst I've been in teacher education for kind of 10 years now, um, because I work part time, I've not been massively involved in the design and the delivery of the PGC program. So actually, this is relatively new for me um, in terms of thinking about what we prioritize in terms of teaching and what's important. Uh, but we did, I did some massive work this year because um, the fellowship in teacher education that, that I mentioned before the program, um, you do a project and mine was what, you know, what, what would it, what would a redesigned PGC program look like? Um, and I did, I wanted to do that because it felt a little bit like, when we talked earlier about how suddenly when we train adults, we, we sort of forget to include all the important parts. Mm. Um, so, for example, we know that the forgetting curve causes us as humans to forget stuff and that if we try and retrieve stuff, then it's more likely that that, that will be strengthened and we will be able to recall that over time. Yes. Um, and so therefore any curriculum should account for that and it felt like we were talking about things like this but we weren't modeling them in terms of the design of our curriculum um, 
And so that's why it felt really important to me that I knew that modeling was important. And I also knew that our program wasn't modeling in the best way that it could, which is why it felt important to do this. And so I've tried to think about like what are the features of this program that that we that we've changed and whether we think they're um, effective or not. So the first thing is that we have explicit name strategies, which I, we kind of referenced before. Um, so we drew from, heavily from the book because, of course, the great thing about making every mass lesson count is that it's it's essentially a list of very practical strategies to use in the classroom. So we drew from that in terms of the maths pedagogy. And we drew a lot from Teach Like a Champion for the classroom management. Not solely, but those two texts were, were pretty useful in terms of the idea that if we could name things, so have explicit strategies for different parts of the lesson, for different scenarios, then we could talk about them together. We could practice them together. And then when you do feedback from observations, you can talk about whether they were present or not or how effective they were. Um, so, for example, when we talked, we did a whole session on feedback within a lesson. So AFL, if you like, yeah. we had um, mini whiteboards was obviously a strategy. Then we've got live feedback, immediate feedback, view with a visualizer, responsive roundup and exit tickets. So I'm not going to go into what those are there in the book, but we would have six different strategies yes. that trainees could use when they were trying to get feedback during the lesson. So we made everything really explicit so that when if you observe the lesson and a trainee wasn't getting any feedback in a lesson, which actually was much less likely to happen because of this focus. But if it was, you could say, um, OK, well, how might you try and get feedback within a lesson? And they they know about these six strategies. And so people say, oh, yeah, I could have used this there, this there, this there. So so that was like one of the main themes was that we had these explicit name strategies. Um, the second thing was trying to make decision making transparent, which is really hard to do. <laughs> um, but so uh, uh, an example might be that we show trainees a selection of mini whiteboard responses. So on a slide, there's 20 rectangles pretending to be mini whiteboards. And on each of them, there's a student response to a given question. And we say to them, well, what do you do? Yeah. So we try and, and prompt different scenarios in the classroom. Yes. So that they can practice the decision making mm. so that they can start to automate that process or at least yes. make that process quicker so that then when they're in the classroom, they can replicate that so that the first time they see a load of mini whiteboards where half of them are right, or half of them are wrong, isn't live in the classroom. Like they they've seen that because we've practiced it loads and said these these are the solutions that you got. Uh, what are you going to do? And so sometimes there's mistakes, sometimes there's computational errors, sometimes they're mostly wrong, sometimes they're mostly right, sometimes they're half and half. And each time we, we practice, we say, OK, what would you do in this scenario? Um, and so that's been quite powerful. Uh, we've also created a kind of decision tree for the for the biggest sort of hinge points in the lesson. So at the top is 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 an action, which is check for prior knowledge. And then the next is the decision is prior knowledge secure? Mm. Yes or no. Mm. And then it's like if if prior knowledge is not secure, then you go to an action, yes. which is teach prior knowledge. 
not plow on regardless, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, is yeah. which is is not their yeah. fault, right? But that's no, what no. trainees do because they 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 don't want they want they don't want to deviate from the plan, exactly. right? But but exactly. but a good teacher will deviate from their plan when they need to. Um, and so again, there's like there's a point where it says um, check for understanding. Um, the decision is is there understanding? Yes or no. If there's not, then you go back to explain. So we're trying to like make some of the really critical decisions that we have seen in the past trainees. So so trainees fall into this um, kind of uh, trap of, of A, not checking for understanding at all and plowing on regardless, or B, checking for understanding, but not responding to yes, to what they yes, see right yes i've been there uh, yeah. exactly right and so so the idea is like it's great to check for understanding but if you don't respond to what you <laughs> yeah. see then there's no point in checking for understanding you're actually yes. just wasting time um so it's so so the second feature if you like is like how do we make these decisions visible and how do we practice making those decisions so that when we have to do it live we're we're, we're better at it so in terms of the the decision making tree will will give them scenarios and say, you've just explained and modeled your new content. You've checked for understanding. The students uh, do not understand. What do you do? And so we, we practice like what the response is. Um, so so we, we kind of hope that that's helping. But there's definitely more work in terms of making more of those decisions visible. And is, is that practice, Emma, is that a kind of enactment as well? Is this role play, for want of a better phrase, or, or is it just kind of talking things through with the person next to you and stuff? What, what, is, what does this practice look like? Um, sometimes it's the, 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 because we're checking for their understanding of this, sometimes we'll use mini whiteboards. Oh, nice, um, yep. Because, because the other thing that I've not got to yet is the modelling idea. So it might be that they use mini whiteboards, Um there's there's about 40 trainees so that's that's a little bit tougher uh checking yes 40 yes. many whiteboards but <laughs> but it's still really useful it might be that they talk to a partner and we take some feedback mm. um it might be that they role play we do quite a lot of um they're in a group of six one of them is the teacher five of them the student they'll, they'll they do a lot of of uh we call them kind of uh practice protocols that they're quite well versed in yes so so it, it might be that they're practicing in a smaller group um and obviously we have this problem whereby novices are really not very reliable people to get feedback from because they don't really understand necessarily uh, you know one of the the features of deliberate practice is like expert feedback mm, yes. um so what we try and do is for each strategy we have success criteria like a successful um, check for mini white uh, mini whiteboard check for understanding has these features, and so when they're doing their practice, when they feed back to each other, they'll be looking at the success criteria for that particular strategy and saying, okay, well, you know, you're uh, you you use mini whiteboards, which was great in your check for understanding, um, uh, but you didn't get us to hold them up at the same time or you know like mm. some people didn't have anything on their board and you didn't do anything about it so we, we try and help them feed back to each other when they're working in the smaller groups in a way that's that's actually useful to each other because clearly with one one or there's two of us normally with 40 students you can't provide that kind of individual as individualized expert feedback um that they require uh 
So moving on to um, the third thing, which is this constant modeling. Um, so we model everything we talk about for two reasons. One is so that the trainees get used to seeing how these things work. Um, and two is because the whole point of them is that they are strategies to improve learning. So it's kind of uh, two, two reasons. And we talked about uh, the seating plan. Like we have a seating plan, one, because it helps the trainees learn better, yes. but also because we're modeling the practice. Um, yes. And so th some examples of, of things that we model is um, so threshold is one of the teach like a champion strategies, which is where we welcome students at the door. So we might model that. Um, we count down for silence to get students uh, to get trainees attention so that it becomes so normal for them to hear us do that, that they can replicate that really easily. That's interesting. Um, and, you know, we explain to we explain to them that it might feel patronizing, but we explain exactly why we're doing it. Um, sometimes we do the hands up as well. You know, they kind of stand at the front and put your hand up. You wait for everyone to put their hands yes, up. Yes. And, and it feels it totally feels weird. But the, but but we've explained that the whole point is that you will see us modeling stuff all the time so that when you do when you get to that point in the classroom, it's far more likely that you're able to enact that quick, quick, quickly. Yes. And maybe automate it as well, which is which is because they've got so many other things to think about, things that we can't practice. So, you know, we, we, we don't talk over trainees. We wouldn't in the same way that we wouldn't talk over students in the class. We model wait time. We use mini whiteboards every session. And we have a really tight routine for countdown, show your boards, picking yes. up on, on people who haven't written anything. <laughs> um, we do. We have spaced retrieval practice. So the first half hour of every session that we have. We call flex, and in that, we will practice some of the decision-making stuff that we just talked about. We will practice some of our classroom management skills. Um, so I might say to them, okay, um, create a concept-non-concept -concept sequence for prime numbers. And on the board, it will say how they work on that in terms of pairs or whatever and it will also say what the success criteria for that is and they will practice that or we'll do mini whiteboard task where we'll ask questions about things that we've learned in the past similarly to how many people have a retrieval practice starter in their classrooms yes um so so we're modeling what uh like you know good practice in terms of the forgetting curve is and we have exit tickets every session as well so wow all of this is geared up so that it's second nature for them to see that that's what learning looks like. God, this incredible. Again, it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's so obvious when you say it that this is a good idea. But it's again, I've, I've never seen it before doing training as if it's essentially your your teaching students. And as two benefits, it makes the training more effective because, again, you're using strategies from from cognitive science and memory and stuff that we know work. But also the, the bit that I'd never considered before is the fact that because it works, the, the trainees see it works. So therefore are more likely to use it in their own practice. They get familiar with it and they see its power. It's yeah, it's again it's so obvious, Emma, but that's that's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Wow. Yeah, I could, you know, occasionally we do these model teaching sessions where I, I kind of teach a lesson as if they're students. 
but it's really weird because they're not students yes. and they ask they don't ask questions that students would ask yes, right yes, and it yes. becomes a bit tangential yes. and, and it and it doesn't it doesn't work and then part of me thinks I don't necessarily need to do this as much as I feel that mm. I have to because they see that constantly because yes, I'm constantly modeling yes. a lesson okay the topic isn't mm. the same it's not a mathematical topic that I'm teaching but I am and I, and I will break, I will I will talk explicitly sometimes about how I've how I've structured a session and and how it replicates what I'm 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 trying to get them to do but the idea is, is that if they experience that enough, I'm hoping that they internalize that as being a really useful structure for for a lesson. And they internalize that I'm constantly getting feedback from them. Um, and we've had it's really hard to measure the, the impact of this program. Like, is it is it better than what we what we did last year? Well, you can't ask the students because they don't know any different. Yes. Um so you have to work out like, who, who is it that can that can help us mm, with this. Mm. Um, and so we've managed to find. So we have a, a role at uni called a link tutor who goes into they go into a school and they interview all of the trainees across all the subjects from from the university. And then they do that in a few different schools. And so there's been some feedback from them that in discussion with the trainees, for example, relating to AFL or feedback that they're already more advanced in their journey about the importance of feedback and its presence in their teaching um, than they might have been in the past. Uh, oh. And mentors is the other people. So if we've got mentors who's had trainees in the past and now, it's a bit more tricky because they've only got one person generally. So, you know, the variability of your trainee comes into play then rather than the effectiveness of the training. But I suppose yes. they are entwined anyway. Um, but yeah, so we've, we've had some feedback from mentors. Um, I think one of them said they wish they were, they wish they were training. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm thinking. Jeez. Yeah. And we did, we did a, we did a mentor evening for the trainees where, uh, sorry, for the mentors where they came in and we, 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 we told them about the program, but we also modeled it. So we got them to, they didn't like it at all, but we did it anyway. <laughs> we got them to sit in pairs and I gave them an exam question and I told them to explain to each other how they would work with a student who yep. didn't understand that. Cause that's something that we do a lot with the trainees as well and and it, they felt really awkward and i did say you're going to feel terrible but yeah, we're going to yeah, do it because yeah. i need you to understand like what's different about what we do yes. um, and that's actually the fourth strand which i don't really need to go into but it's this idea of plentiful practice um of, of practicing everything as much as we possibly have time to do it and that could be classroom management it could be explaining topics it could be creating a concept non sequence um, and it's mini teachers so they do little bits of teaching in teams where they might be responsible for like the prior knowledge check or the explanation or the practice or the feedback um, and, and they work together to create a cycle of, of part of a lesson um, and then they get feedback on that so yeah it's wow. um, it, it's been a big old job but it's really really exciting like this is what I love doing this is my passion um, and I can already see how to how to make it even better next year. Um, and hopefully we're helping students, uh, our trainees become uh, kind of more effective teachers sooner and having more confidence in the classroom. Um, Jeez. But who, I, I who knows? 
well, again, it sounds incredible, Emma. This may be an impossible question to ask you just before we move on to reflections. But if, if we've got a, a, a teacher listening who's maybe they're a trainee teacher, maybe they're an NQT, RQT. And obviously, aside from relocating to Brighton and enrolling on your course, they're, they're thinking, I want to get a bit of this action. This sounds absolutely brilliant. Is there any kind of one thing that they could bring into either their planning their practice the way they think about things that could start to reap obviously not all of these benefits but but some of them is it is it the reenactment is it you know, is it what 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 is it? is it, is there anything practical that somebody listening who isn't part of this program could could do to start getting getting better as a teacher for want of a better, a better phrase I think that if a trainee isn't familiar with Teach Like a Champion, I think that can be a really powerful place to start in terms of having explicit strategies for, I mean, you know, Teach Like a Champion is not just about classroom management. It's building a great culture for learning as well. So, um, you know, if if they're not familiar with that, that's really useful. But then again, we're back to the, you know, the book doesn't change the practice, changing teaching changes teaching um i don't think i said that right that <laughs> no i know what you mean so, <laughs> um yeah um so it's the it's the practicing it's like if if you spot something that you want to try you need to practice it yes. um and then and then in the book actually i talk a little bit about how we also need to form habits for these things otherwise they become mm. a fad that we that we yes. that we forget about yes. and you know it was something that we tried for a week and and that was that you know um so i would say that um like reaching for a really practical book and and if they're training in maths like i would hope that my book's quite useful in that sense and something like teach like a champion and then practicing like the thing not all of them obviously but but the things that they see would would help them in terms of where they are um that's probably a really useful thing for them to do. Yeah, I agree. And what's, what's nice, of course, about Teach Like a Champion is is the videos that, that come as part of, um, you know, the, the field work and, and on the website. So teachers can actually see these these strategies in action. I find that that, that super, super powerful as well. Um, fantastic, Emma. Right. Well, it's, it's time for you to do a bit of reflecting now, if, if, if that's OK. So I wonder if there's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about. Yes. Lots of things. Um, I think the thing that, that stuck in my mind when I read this question was um, my my thoughts on knowing your times tables. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. And, and this might be where we step into uh, controversy a little bit. But um, <laughs> when I uh, maybe about 10 years ago, um, I got involved with uh joe bowler's replication of her rail side project in the uk all right okay yeah we were one of the schools um and so we did a lot of work with joe and a lot of work on complex instruction um and you know as part of that i started to think that um it, it didn't matter if students knew their times table or not that as long as they had a way of working them out, that was fine. Mm, yes. And so the idea that um, students didn't know eight sevens, but knew two sevens and could double and double again mm. was was fine. Um, 
And I think I've changed my mind on that. Uh, I didn't know about limitations of working memory then. I didn't know about memory uh, at all, really, in terms of, of how that might be operating. And I, I, I moved from a it doesn't matter to I think it's really important. And I think it's really important because I think when you can't recall them, uh, I think the strain that it can place on working memory if it's part of a greater question um so if it's part of a long multiplication or part of uh, a multi-step question whereby students have to do lots of, of calculations and they're falling down on this one part and they're back to their doubling doubling strategy yes. um i i worry about that becoming inaccessible to them um and so i think i've changed my mind on that uh and I still want them to know that that you can get eight sevens by uh, two, doubling two times seven and doubling again. Like I still want them to have those relationships and the conceptual understanding of, of what they're doing when they're multiplying. But I, I, I think it's really important that they have um, automated recall of, of multiplication facts. Yeah, and that's it's... that's, you know, that's something that I felt quite strongly on that, on on the opposite side. Uh, yeah, many I, many years ago i'm exactly the same with you emma on this so i did joe's um stanford university online course where um, i first learned about number talks and th this exact idea of here's a here's a multiplication problem or a division or whatever it is and let's come up with as many different ways of of, of solving it to develop flexibility with numbers and i was so excited about about trying these out and for about a year um, I tried them religiously once a week, and I was very fortunate that year. I had a top set year seven and a bottom set year seven. We we, we set it, set in our schools from year seven, um, and it was fascinating. The top set year seven, they thrived on these because, um, and, and they would come up with loads of different strategies, and we'd evaluate the effectiveness of doing it this way versus this way, and what is it about this problem that makes this strategy more effective than others. Well, my bottom set, it was painful. It was painful because... Um, when I when I really stopped and thought about this, it wasn't the number talk that was the problem. It was the fact that they were having to think so hard about each of the individual calculations involved that they simply had nothing left to focus on the, the wider strategy or be able to evaluate why these strategies are the same or how they're different and so on and so forth. And I think that flexibility with numbers and that ability to pull things apart and approach calculations in different ways that is super important, but it needs to be built upon a foundation of, of automaticity of at least some basic facts to make it effective. And yeah, that again, I have that is something as well. I've completely changed my mind on. I used to believe incredibly passionately about that. And I still think the number talks are important, but I just shift the order around a little bit. So it's, mm. it's very, very interesting. You say that one, Emma. Very interesting. Um, OK, second reflection then. Um, is, is there anything you wish you'd known when you first started out that you know now? All of it, all of it, Craig, <laughs> everything, everything in your book, everything in my book. Um, I don't know. Oh, it's so hard. I, I suppose you have to go back to the science of learning. Like if you have an understanding yes. of the importance of attention um, and how uh, memory works, then actually that is the thing that changes the your, your lesson planning. Like that's the thing that changes how you what the attention that you pay to different things 
in terms of, uh, you, you know, your worked example or, or whatever it is, because you, you're trying to focus attention whilst not overloading students or whilst whilst placing the right load on, yes. on students in terms of what um, in terms of their cognitive load. Um, and so I suppose that if if I'd known about that, it would have had a wider impact in terms of of my practice um and, and, and i think you know you and i have been on a very similar voyage of discovery in that sense um i think the curse of knowledge has been a real eye-opener because mm. i only came across that quite recently and knowing about that changes how i plan yes um so that has been really really crucial um, and as, as, as probably fed into some of the design of the new program as well, in terms of now I'm a bit more aware of how, like we talked about, how some ideas are, are maybe novice ideas and some are more mm. complex. I'm a bit more aware of that because of that. Um, so yeah, all of it really there. <laughs> yeah, I'm with I'm with you on all that. I'm with you on all that. Yeah, that will be it. That for me will be both the hardest and easiest question for me to answer because it would the easiest way is just to say I literally wish I knew it all, and the hardest would be to unpick absolutely every bit because we'd just be mm. here for hours and hours. So I'm, I'm with you on that one. Right, Emmett. So it's time for me to hand over completely to you for your for your big three, and you've kind of teased us with a couple of these, but I wonder if you want to go through them one at a time, and I'll place a link to these in the show notes. So go for it, Emma. What are your big three? So my first one is one that we mentioned quite a lot. So it's the SERP materials, um, algebra by example and math by example, which are the uh, banks of incorrect worked examples, which are amazing. They're literally yes. my top. If, any, if you were to ask me what's my top resource, it would be these every time, only because wow. they're so I just think they're so different to yes, most materials that we come across. Um, and so in that sense, that makes them quite powerful. And have um, you seen, I'm sure I've seen, isn't like geometry by example on its way or on something? On its way, yeah. yeah. I tweeted so about that. I think it's exciting. But I think it's like 2021 or something. <sighs> I know. That's a they like to, that's that a, a real blow. teaser, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's why I didn't mention it. I don't think yeah. we need to pick that up yet. <laughs> so, so, yes, clearly they are... Um, producing lots of these materials i think the feedback has been great and so yes geometry is is on the way but if i remember correctly not for some time yeah i think you're right 2021 sends ages away as well and it's it's actually not that far away is it? yeah. <laughs> but, um then the second one is open middle nice. uh, because it's a really good source of uh, depth of knowledge two and three levels two and three um, but also they're just some really lovely questions um, in terms of making students think a bit harder. Really lovely questions if, if you if you kind of have this structure in your classroom whereby you have um, like a, a, a practice task and you want like an extension question. It's they're, they're kind of really good fodder for that as well. Yes, um, and what's interesting, agree. I don't know whether you know why they're called open middle questions. Um, um 
I would, I always thought it was because they've kind of got a fixed start and end point, but the kids can go different directions in the middle of the problem. That was always my interpretation. Nail on the head, exactly. Oh, and that's what, yeah, there you go. No pressure. And that, But that's really lovely because it avoids those problems where you have kind of more investigative tasks whereby yes. students will end up at different end points, yes. which yes. is just really hard to bring together, right? We've all done that and tried to kind of make sense of all these different ideas that students have got and, it, and it, it's really hard to do. Um, so Oak Middle has got some really nice um, tasks in that sense. Um, and then finally, there's, there's the link to the learning curriculum. Yes. And what um, will that be easy for, for listeners to find? I'm just thinking if they don't visit the um, the show notes, if they just Google learning curriculum, will it come up or would you advise yeah. they stick anything else in there? Uh, they might want to stick Ambition Institute in there as Ambition. well. Um, that might be useful. But I will um, I'll, I'll tweet a link to it as well. And also I was thinking I was talking about the um, the strategy comparison worked examples and they're quite hard to explain without the images. So what I'll do is um, I'll tweet some of those as well when the when the podcast goes out. Oh, amazing. Well, yeah, if you do or if you send me those through, I'll put them in the show notes as well. Oh, fab. I'll do that. Amazing. That'd be amazing. Well, Emma, we, when we were I mean, we've talked about doing this interview for a, a long, long time. Yes. Um, and it's, it's been been building up and building up and building up. And, and finally, it's here. And it's, it's been better than I, I even imagined. We knew it was going to be an epic. We, we've definitely crossed the three hour mark. I've not even added my intro and takeaway yet. So oh, this, no. is, this is going to be. Yeah. This, this is people's kind of termly commute sorted out um, I, th- I think listen to this but it, it's been amazing Emma. just like your book it's been I, I think ram full of theory but also practical things whether we're talking about uh, lesson planning whether we're talking about ramping up challenge whether we're talking about frameworks whether we're talking about working with trainee teachers it's it's things again that people can put into practice straight away and also things that people can build in over over the the rest of their careers so uh, emma this has been an absolute pleasure and, and thank you so much for, for giving up your time to speak to me today not at all it's been an absolute privilege thank you greg So there you have it. There was my interview with Emma McRae. That was a good one, hey? Jam-packed full of practical things that you could do straight away, but also lots to fester in the mind over the coming weeks, months, and years. Um, A few takeaways, and again, it's one of those jam-packed full of so much stuff, it's hard to know where to start, but I've, I've chosen five things that I've been reflecting on in the few days since I spoke to Emma. And the first is, that frameworks for changing challenge. I thought that was a lovely concept. Um, and it's one of those things that um, when, I, when I read Emma's book uh, before it came out, I thought, well, that's good. But just like anything, life gets in the way, loads of ideas build on top of other things um, and you forget stuff. And it's, it's talking to Emma there reminded me just how powerful that is. Um, particularly, well, two reasons, really. One, when I'm doing my own planning, but also when I'm working with other teachers and, and we're thinking about planning. This idea of, of changing challenge or perhaps specifically increasing challenge of a problem, because you can take a problem and say, oh, let's make that more difficult. But that's quite a that's quite an abstract concept. What, what do you mean to, to make it more difficult? But this is a definite framework for, for things that you could change, key aspects, and I think Emma mentioned five of them, aspects about the pr- a problem that you could change that increases the challenge, but in very specific ways. So I thought that was a, a really lovely kind of practical framework that can be applied 
to any problem, any subject across mathematics. And as I say, I, I reckon that's got applications whether you've just started out teaching or whether you've been at it for a rather long time. So I love that one, framework for changing challenge. Um, perhaps the biggest takeaway from me for, from this whole thing, and it's it's one of those things, it's so obvious when you say it out loud, but it's, it's teaching adult training. And by that, I mean whether we're doing like a, a session a, a, in twilight or inset training or working with, with colleagues within our school or working with novice teachers. It's tr treating that uh, training as if you're teaching children. And it's madness that the way I do my training when I work with teachers it looks completely different to how I teach kids. And that's absolute madness because as, as listeners will know, and if you've read my book, I, I undergone a bit of a midlife, well, mid-career crisis uh, where I completely changed the way I, I teach students um, to try and tap into lessons from cognitive science and so on and so forth. But I'll tell you what, the way I work with adults, that's not changed at all. And it's, it's just crazy. Uh, everyone learns in pretty much the same way. We, we, we know these kind of best bets, things that are going to be effective to help people retain things and understand things. So why have I not been doing it more with, with no matter which type of learner I'm working with? So the big hitters like modeling, like checking for understanding, like constant retrieval activities, they can be built in no matter who we're working with. Anything that we want people to remember and understand, those key principles that we use in our lessons need to be applied. Um, the learning curriculum document's a fantastic place to start having a look through this. It, it really is a wonderful, wonderful um, piece of work. And, and as Emma says, there's there's a bit of a problem in this country where a lot of the effort goes into to, to training novice teachers really early on in their career but but where's the revisiting where's where's the kind of coming back together to to look at these more expert strategies and that's where this learning curriculum um, is absolutely fantastic and the key point from all of this and I absolutely love this in terms of um, working with novice teachers is that if we train them um, using all these principles like modeling, like checking for understanding, like building in retrieval opportunities. That it's a two for one deal because they remember the things that we're training them on and teaching them, but also because they remember them, they see the effectiveness of these strategies so more likely to then use them when they're teaching their own students. So I, I thought that was absolutely fantastic. So use effective training strategies, gives a two for one deal, people remember the material and also realize just how effective those strategies are. So that, that was a massive one for me. Um, another thing I wanted to, to, to mention was this notion of, of making mistakes um, um, and specifically making them in retrieval opportunities. Um, I, I'm a bit obsessed with um, research into mistakes, obviously through diagnostic questions. I'm, I'm obsessed with misconceptions. And there's um, I did a lot of reading on this for my first book. And one of the key things that came out was that mistakes, it's absolutely crucial for students to understand the concept that they, they can identify mistakes and articulate why they're mistakes and explain how to correct them. And a, a big mistake I made for many years was not making enough of that, not exposing my students to, to errors and asking them to try and get to the bottom of them and explain them and so on. But the other thing that comes out from, from the reading that I did is that exposing to kids to, uh, to mis exposing mistakes to kids to, that's the wrong way around, exposing kids to mistakes too early on um, in their learning of, a, of an idea or concept is potentially problematic because they don't have this kind of, uh, backlog, of backlog of experience of, of correct ways of doing things to contrast the mistake with. Um, and there's been a couple of studies, uh, I think Booth et al have been involved in this, who are one of the authors behind the um, Algebra by Example and Math by Example materials, 
that there's an act- actually a danger that exposure to mistakes too early can mean that students actually remember the wrong way of doing it as opposed to the right way of doing it. So that's why when I use diagnostic questions, I make a big thing of the wrong answers because I use diagnostic questions as a, a tool to assess understanding of something that I've taught previously. So it feels that feels the right time to be digging into, into mistakes, getting students to, to, well, seeing if students have got this more complete understanding. They don't just know how to get it right. They can also identify when and why somebody's going wrong. But also what I definitely don't do enough of, and it's through Emma that I'm thinking more about this now, is explicitly build mistakes into other retrieval opportunities. So whether it's low stakes quizzes, mixed topic homework, starters, whatever it may be, instead of just giving kids questions to answer to test recall, um, what about giving them a, a work solution with a mistake in it of something that they studied you know, a month ago, two months ago, whenever it, whenever it may be, and that question is, where's the mistake? Identify it, explain it, and correct it. And therefore, you're getting all the benefits of the testing effect or the retrieval effect because kids are having to think back to something that they've done a few months ago, but you're also getting a more, it's, it's, it's ramping up that challenge a bit because it's not just getting it right, it's, it's identifying where it's wrong and correcting it. So explicitly building mistakes into retrieval opportunities, I think potentially is a really super smart idea. Um, final couple of things. Uh, again, the, I'm, I'm really pleased any time Doug Lamov's name comes up on this show because he's just he's got so much gold in in his Teach Like a Champion book and um, all the, all the work that he does, all the writing that he does. And the, yeah, I'm so pleased Emma reminded me of, of Doug's insistence on um, or advice around explicitly naming the strategies that we used. So Doug will call uh, things like cold call. So therefore, instead of having to try and describe what you're doing, so I am going to try and ensure that all my students are thinking about the answers and I'm going to select them. Um, so instead of having hands up, I'm going to pick them out either random or strategically, blah, 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 blah. Like, what, what the hell are you going on about? Well, I'm going to do cold call. So instead you give it this catchy name and what, what this enables... Uh, to happen is that you get a shared vocabulary the the teachers who are trying out this strategy know what each other's talking about the kids who you're doing this strategy with they know what you're talking about so uh, giving a strategy a name uh, ideally a short sharp name ensuring that everybody knows what that encompasses it can just make any training or reflection upon that strategy so much more effective so I, th- I think that's it's again it's one of those things it's a relatively obvious point but it's a super powerful point that this this idea of a, a creating a shared vocabulary by explicitly giving the strategies that you're trying names I think that's super important and the final thing and it's really interesting this um when I recorded this with Emma I recorded it on a Tuesday maybe I think um and then on Thursday um I recorded an interview with Tom Frankham um, and that'll come out uh, in, a, in a month or so's time something like that and it's really interesting both both in uh, conversations um had a focus on working with novice teachers um, but both went off in different directions which is going to make for fascinating uh, listening it's kind of a, it'll be an ultimate double bill but one thing that came out of both of them which i've definitely been guilty of is not overfeeding back from lesson observations so i'll sit there and watch a lesson and i'm writing down you know seven or eight things different ideas different things teachers could try and so on and so forth 
And then during the feedback session, like I, I, I do the classic thing of asking the, the teacher I've watched what they thought of the lesson and so on and so forth. But then out I come with suggestion after suggestion. So maybe you could try this. What about you tried this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And again, it's, it's absolutely horrendous. I, I wouldn't do that with the kids. I wouldn't, when I'm teaching the kids, I wouldn't say, try this, try this, try this, try this, or here's this method, here's this method, here's this, and blah, 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 blah. It's, it's picking out the pertinent thing, the key thing. So not overfeeding back, not not thinking, right, instead of giving you, I'm going to, instead of giving you, I'm going to give you seven things to think about. It's, it's thinking, what's the single most important thing? What's the thing that's going to make the biggest difference? What's either the quickest win or the highest impact thing that I can say to this teacher that they can then take away and focus on that and that alone? As opposed to giving them seven things that they just simply don't have time or, or the, the energy or the focus to, to, to put into all those things. And then it just all goes away. It leads to nothing. So that's something I'm definitely going to start doing a lot more. When I'm lucky enough and privileged enough to watch a teacher teach, when I speak to them afterwards, um, I'm just going to pick up, pick up one thing. And, and hopefully it'll be something that they suggest themselves, something that feels important to them, they've got an investment in. But just one thing, because this overfeeding back, it's definitely not the case that more is more, which, which I've been guilty of uh, for many, many years now. So there you go. Um, I'll tell you what I should also say before I wrap up. Um, so listeners will know that me and my wife um, had our first baby. He's 11 months old now at the time of recording this, Isaac. And I'll tell you something, his sleep... We thought we had it nailed. Um, I was bragging left, right, and said, oh, yeah, he sleeps really, really well, blah, blah, blah. Last, let's say, three weeks, God almighty, he has gone backwards. He is awake all the time. He was, what was it, three in the morning this morning. He's bouncing around in his jumper room in the lounge, laughing his head off. He's gone manic. He's gone absolutely mental. And as such, I mean, my wife's suffering more than me, but um, I am a walking wreck. Um, and I hope it didn't it, uh, kind of lower the quality of, of the conversation with Emma too much because I'd, I'd had a bad night's sleep and I was trying to keep sharp because Emma's super sharp and there's loads of things I wanted to get out of it. But hopefully it didn't uh, affect the interview too much. But even during this takeaway, you know, I'm struggling to get to the end of sentences. I'm midway through a sentence and I'm thinking, where am I going with this? Where, where did I start with this? What what word have I just said? I can't find I can't find the words. I've no idea what I'm talking about half the time. So I just wanted to apologise. Um, I don't know when I'm going to get this sorted you know maybe by the time he's 18 and they start sleeping by then um so yeah we'll uh yeah hopefully fingers crossed uh, fairly soon i'll get some energy and some coherence back but uh, just bear with me now uh, listeners if that's all right anyway so to wrap things up uh usual thanks so thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show thank you of course to emma um for uh, taking the time to speak to me uh, absolutely i absolutely love emma to bits um, i really enjoyed the conversation and a book is wonderful but really it is wonderful um as i said it's it's full of stuff you can action immediately but also things that just keep you thinking for, for weeks months and years it's fantastic um, and thank you to you my lovely loyal listeners um Again, I, I'm struggling at the moment to put two two podcasts out a month. It's kind of dropping to, to one or like about 1.3 podcasts a month. That's because uh, I'm doing a lot of traveling, a lot of work, uh, trying to be a half-decent father, half-decent husband, trying to do some writing and kind of failing in a bit of everything at the moment. But I'm, I'm trying my best to keep this podcast going. So um, yeah, s stick with me. Uh, that'd be brilliant. Uh, anyway, if you want to uh, share share the... I can't even speak, you know. Um, spread the word about this podcast. Uh, maybe recommend this episode to a colleague. Uh, that'd be fantastic if you haven't left a review yet 
Uh, perhaps don't review this takeaway because, as I say, I'm, I'm just mumbling away at the moment. But if you could, uh, if you could leave a positive review, that just helps more people get aware of this. And I think I best shut up now. Maybe go and have a lie down. And um, thanks so much for listening. You take care of yourselves, and I'll see you soon. Bye for now.